0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Iron List. This is a show where we do lists here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I am
1: a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, My name is Winnie Seibold. I, too, am a critic. I don't have a cute nickname. Um, So, there! I'm I'm reminded of, with the topic of this week's or this month's list, Mm. uh, of a song by They Might Be Giants. Mm. It was on their kids' record. Did a couple uh, of those, didn't they? They did a couple of those. The first yeah. one was called No. <laughs> okay. It's just called No. The next one was called Flicking the Lights On and Off. <laughs> uh, I think the second one is just Here Come the ABCs. Yeah. There was oh, another Here did... Comes Science, which is also really good. Uh, excuse me. The one I'm uh to to is from uh, Here Come the ABCs because it's about the letter E. Huh. It's called E Eats Everything. And every letter of the alphabet has a, a very particular diet. Okay. Okay. And E, but E eats everything.
0: Well, E is until I they think, the most commonly used letter in the English alphabet. Isn't I, it? I
1: believe it is uh, until yeah. and the they go through all of the letters of the alphabet. But E eats everything. Uh, yeah. you know, J, J only, only drinks juice, etc. They, they finally get to Z. and Z eats E's. <laughs> <laughs> so Makes was, think. I'm coming up with this list, no, and I'm like com- coming here. to myself this little like alphabet song for children. Uh, nice. Z eats E.
0: Anyway, this is the Iron List. Uh, every month here at the Iron List, our patrons over patreon.com slash critically claimed network vote for a topic for Whitney and I to do a competitive top 10 list. Whitney comes up with a top 10 list based on that topic. I come up with a top 10 list based on that topic. We do not talk about it beforehand. We don't even really discuss the criteria, although sometimes it's a little easier than others to determine what that criteria is. Because it was the month of April and April fools, uh, we had a whole bunch of options on uh, this month's poll for things that had nothing to do with movies, like our favorite candy bars, which I totally would have done all the research for. And we (laughs) would have, like, gotten
1: candy. Yeah, it would have been a fun, like, foodie episode. Yeah,
0: we didn't do, uh, speaking of food, we had one option that was the best Los Angeles restaurants, that kind of thing. We had one that was the best board games, uh, the best classic video games, and.
1: because we're I, old and that's what we have experience. Yeah, in. we don't we
0: don't we don't play we don't have a lot of time to play PS Five. Sorry, uh, they're up to five now. Yeah. Oh my god. Good luck getting one. And uh, yeah, uh, there was some support for the non movie related mm. options. Uh, none of it was was quite enough to upseat the only movie related option we have, which is the next in our long running series of films. That begin with a letter Now most Mm. films do Some begin with numbers But if you spell it out Even those usually begin with letters
1: (laughs) I digress Thanks for spelling that out
0: (laughs) Well uh, My point is this We've already done The best movies that begin with the letter A The best movies that begin with the letter B And so on And this month Here at the Iron List We are doing the best movies that begin with the letter E Now There aren't actually as many as you'd think I was looking over, like I I had my
1: commonly used letter in uh, the English language, but for whatever reason, to start off a word, to start
0: (laughs) off, like there aren't as many, like when you look at, like, um, because what I usually do is I come up with like a list of movies, kind of off the top of my head, things that I deem important. But after I've come up with my short list, I want to make sure I didn't just forget something, like oh, I forgot something stupid. Like, ah, I can't believe I was doing the best movies with the letter C and I forgot Citizen Kane. So I'll look up and they're like Wikipedia pages full of movies that begin with a certain letter or so on and so forth. Uh, And I was looking at the page for that just to be thorough and surprisingly few in the grand scheme of things. So this is actually uh, a bit bit trickier because Mm -hmm. although having too many options is a bit of a problem, having too few might force you to put some things in your top 10 list that ordinarily you wouldn't put in a top 10 list (laughs) that maybe are going to get a little elevated Uh because the competition is a little unusually uh, uh, limited. So
1: I've got some some fun stuff on my list. I was about to say, there's some pretty good bangers on that start with the letter A. I
0: got some bangers, Mm. I just have a couple of things that I mm. think are a little, uh, people ordinarily might not mm. make the top 10, but I think they're right. great and I'm looking forward to recommending them. It's
1: going to be fun. Um, I'll say this, uh, I didn't include, um, the recent film Encanto, uh, the mm. Disney animated feature on, uh, on my list. Okay. Uh, I did put it on, uh, my runners up at Same. the assistance of my son. Who just who just turned seven? <laughs> he likes that one, huh? Uh, and he, yeah, he he's he hasn't seen a lot of movies. He likes, but he does mm. like Encanto, and he really likes the soundtrack. And um, I seriously consider he, uh, putting it out there. I love Encanto, he, but he I was said, like, let's put, give it some time to, he to said, marinate. Uh, but what he told me was put down Encanto, and then in parentheses put the word enchantment because that's what Encanto means. Nice, And he's right. Uh, that well, yes, that's true, and I, <laughs> I'm I'm impressed with his vocabulary. Hmm. Good job, yeah, Whitney's uh, son. <laughs> his name is Henry. Okay. He just turned seven. Nice. Uh, yeah, so I, I do have on my list Encanto, and parentheses, Enchantment. Nice. Uh, at my son's insistence. Uh, but I didn't put it on my final top ten. Okay. Well, I
0: respect that. Mm. Uh, so beyond that, uh, there are only a couple more things to note before we get started. Uh, one, in case anyone at home is a little fussy, uh, we're not going to worry too much about articles at the beginning of a word. So, like... I don't know, the Emperor's new groove would still be eligible even though it's technically begins with a T if you want to get really technical no, about no, it nobody we're going that we're way. going with how it would be alphabetized. so there's yeah. that. The other thing, and this is uh, how Whitney and I like to do our top ten lists is uh the order doesn't really matter. Once you've hit the top ten list of something, they're all recommendations. Yeah, We're yeah, saying they're see. all great. So fussing about over which one should be number seven versus which one should be number six is kind of irrelevant. We want you to see all these movies. The only exception is that both Whitney and I have picked a number one. This is the one film which, you know, if w- space aliens came down hmm. and said, we're going to destroy the planet until you tell us what you think is the best film that begins with letter E. We have an answer for that. I don't put a lot of stock in that happening, but just in case, we've got you covered. All right. On that note, Whitney, anything else before mm. we go? Want to get
1: started? Uh, one one last note. Yes. Uh, because I do have a uh, a film on my list that sort of slips mm. through a loophole a little bit. Interesting. And that is uh films uh. Whose titles are not in English?
2: Ah, so they have options t- there. Yeah, are
1: typically uh, listed in American alphabetizing systems, right. With the first letter of their article, yes. Like um, uh, Il Postino mm-hmm. means the postman, right? That should go under P for Postino, but it's usually found under I for Il, right? Um, Are you going to fudge this a little bit? Are you can put an L in there? I'm going to put an L in there.
0: Okay, so well, our I'm one on, rule because, with this... But
1: because... I think I'm allowed because it was never released under a translation of its title. Okay. Well, my
0: one rule, and I think we, we've mentioned this before. It hasn't come up in a while. Hmm. The one rule, if you're going to be like the original title versus the American title,
1: hmm.
0: when if the other letter comes around, you're still you're gonna allowed to use it. You used it once. Yes. So if this is l whitney hmm. well like you can't come around and use it again when the w's cover along you have to pick your yeah, battles
1: like uh, i think for uh, our list of the best films that started with the letter c i listed children of paradise the there you go movie. and
0: um that's les enfants
1: du Paradis*. L- les enfants du Paradis*. i could have put it under l for mm-hmm. les enfants or, or e for enfant. maybe uh, that would have been a great pick instead but wasted it i, I didn't wasted. it i talked about <laughs> children of paradise several letters ago now. So <laughs> if you haven't watched it, please watch Children of Paradise. It's yeah. literally one of the best movies ever made. Uh, so, but because that was released in the United States as Children of Paradise, right. C is fair game. Sure. If, it was le- if it was released in the United States as Les de Paradis, and then of course, the way uh, articles work in certain languages are a little mm. bit uh, dodgy when it comes to American alphabet- alphabetization. Right. Uh, like, is L'Aventura an A title or an L title. It's mm. L apostrophe. And we don't yeah. have that, that kind of article in, in English. Mm. So, uh, I'm going to have one, I guess I'll start with that one. Uh, yeah. You might as well kick us off. It's, uh, and it is Alejandro Jodorowsky's El Topo. Oh, there you go. Which uh, translates to the mole but it was never released as The Mole. It was only ever released as El Topo. El Topo was the first midnight movie. Uh, Technically. The, the story of a first proper midnight movie. Yeah. Not, not the first movie somebody watched at midnight. No. You, no. <laughs> uh, you know,
2: th-
1: th- what we think of as the midnight movie phenomenon kind of began properly with El Topo. Uh, a theater owner in, I think it was in New York, uh, had got this really bizarre acid Western in the early, ni- early 1970s. It was made in 71. And, uh, played it from what I understand played it during the day and got no audience but it was such a weird film that uh, he said well you know what why don't I just wait until the last movie's over and then show it show it after hours and this is key Mm -hmm. allow smoking not necessarily of tobacco. No! <laughs> in fact, the association between, like, midnight cult movies and marijuana is very, very strong because of this. And, you know, the the idea of staying up late and getting high and watching a movie on TV. Oh, child, you are taking part in a grand tradition that goes back away many, many years. Getting high and watching bad movies after hours is something <sighs> that your parents do.
0: They, 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 when, when weed predates movies. <laughs> yes. I assure you people were getting stoned On one thing or another And going to Nickelodeons And shoving their face into those Little opticons Mm. And be like oh my god That that cat tripped over a hose Holy (laughs) shit past
1: the laudanum Yeah
0: (laughs) When people people get like snarky about Like oh I want to see movies The way they were originally meant to be seen Really on tiny
1: little screens And nickel (laughs) slots (laughs) in at, at amusement parks at the okay. wharf I need to see I need to see them in a theater yeah this like 60 this, second this, this, this shitty 60 seat theater on a pier where you can smell like there's crabs scuttling around your feet and like yeah. four guys are doing a drug deal in the back and <laughs> the purity of cinema give me a fucking break uh, anyway uh, El Topo okay uh, by Alejandro Jodorowski it was not his first movie but it was sort of mm-hmm. like his first uh Bigger one. Big, you well, know, it re- reached a larger audience. Yeah, it
0: reached, reached an American
1: audience. And it's uh, ostensibly a Western. It's about a, a gunslinger and his young son, and uh, he speaks to his young son saying, you're, you're grown up now, bury your, uh, a picture of your mother. And uh, the goal of this gunslinger is to, like, kill the gunslinging masters of the Old West. But mm-hmm. they're actually, the gunslingers of the Old West are spiritual gurus who each have their own uh sort of surrealistic space that they mm. operate in and, yeah it's, and,
0: it's like he's going through like um i don't know like different levels of consciousness with everyone he yeah, eliminates or th-
1: there's a or very opening
0: up different chakras yeah, or very wanna,
1: deliberate yeah. uh spiritual symbolism in all of this and there you know there's a lot of queerness and a lot of violence and uh there's eventually he is bested and uh, ends up having to you know move into a cave with some like outcast people who live outside of the city and he becomes a monk inside the cave and every every year they come out and they perform for the local village like it goes to all of these mm. bizarre places meanwhile his son grows up and also becomes a gunslinger and swears vengeance on his father uh and it, and it all ends with immolation uh, it's trippy and wonderful yeah I, I feel like There aren't too many movies anymore, and there even weren't a a lot in the 70s that... Uh, sought to use movies as a spiritual conduit. Uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky has said in interviews that he uh, wanted people to use his movies the same way they would use acid. Yeah. Uh, like, don't don't take you can take acid or you can see one of my movies. Yeah. Uh, so you're not this meant one, you know, to, you're
0: not meant to just watch it as a normal movie. Not much to just get, take it literally hmm. and just follow along with the plot. Like, you're you're so supposed really, to you're sort of experience, to, yeah, and, meditate with yeah. it, and
1: be really kind of deep inside yeah. of it. Um, yeah.
0: As though these are uh, uh, thoughts that are going through your head.
1: There's there's some yeah. controversy about the movie because Jodorowski claims to have committed uh, a really horrendous crime on the set. Uh-huh. He said that he claims to have done this. Yeah, other people have said that's the kind of bullshit he says to sort of make himself seem more salacious. Well, the, he, he, and the person he, he, he uh, yeah. allegedly insulted was already dead, so there was no uh, yeah, no no to substantiate Yeah, he, he even it.
0: He, he's also claimed that in an effort to try to get his movie seen, he put himself out there as this. It's uh, like It's horrible It's a rag, ragamuffin
1: yeah. It's like a yeah. criminal artist uh, And uh, that, that made it more interesting And
0: uh, you know what No matter how mm. you slice it Even in the best interpretation of that That's fucked up
1: That's a shitty thing to do That's uh, shitty
0: in the best scenario In the mm. worst scenario It's unforgivable Yeah uh, So that's You're gonna have to choose What to do with that mm. Uh, what, what, whether whether what, you're look, comfortable watching the movie or uh, or or uh, not, uh, it is he's he's a significant filmmaker in terms of his influence. Hmm. Uh, in terms, I mean, this is the Midnight Movie. I mean, he, this, didn't, well, he didn't do that on purpose, but it happened. Uh, and, it,
1: it happened, and also yeah. it it took on uh, took off in the underground in a big way, and a lot of yeah. his movies started taking off. Like uh, the, the Beatles were a big fan of his movies, yeah. and they talked up his movies a lot, and uh, they made him a lot of movie for this. Uh, horrendous asshole named Alan Klein, who, uh, t- t- like, owned his movies, and in fact, you couldn't get Alejandro Jodorowsky's for movies mm. for a long time, but just because Alan Klein was a dick, and he didn't want to let them go.
0: I remember. Um, I remember when they first, like, came out on DVD mm. proper. It was, yeah. like, a big fucking deal. And, yeah.
1: uh, if you remember uh, the band The Verve? Yeah. Uh, they had a, a hit called The Bittersweet Symphony.
0: Yeah. Uh, Is that...
1: Cl- well, here here's here's how Alan Klein plays into that.
0: I'm very curious. They got
1: no royalties for that hit song. Okay. They got no money. Huge hit. Uh, you know, got all the money, songwriters, the Rolling Stones.
0: Oh, because they Because didn't. they yeah.
1: they sampled an orchestral version of I think it was um Uh, Uh, not mother's little helper it was a a stone song yeah they sampled an orchestral version of a stone song and because of that alan klein said i'm going to sue the pants off you he did they got songwriting credit they got all the royalties and they didn't get the rights back to that movie until alan klein fucking died
0: (laughs) uh one second here the the rolling stone song is called the last time it's from 1965 this
1: could be the last time yeah yeah Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, Alan Klein also owned uh, Alejandro uh, yeah,
2: filmography.
1: filmography uh, yeah. His, I love Alejandro Jodorowsky. I love just the way he swings for yeah. the walls with his deep aspirations to do something uh, deeply spiritual and strange with cinema. Yeah. Uh, my favorite of his is The Holy Mountain. Uh, yeah. And the, the films he did kind of recently about his own youth. Uh, one was called Endless Poetry. One was called uh, The Dance, Dance of Reality. Of Re- Dance of Reality and yeah. Endless Poetry. Uh, both excellent movies about sort of Content, yeah. coming to terms with your own youth and your space as an artist in the world. Yeah. I recommend El Topo, but once again... Controversial. Controversial. Uh, yeah. L- look up information. Figure out what you think... What the truth is, because it's kind of yeah. hard to suss out. And, yeah, uh, and depending on how you
0: feel might have a serious impact yeah, yeah. on whether or not you even want to see We're it. Even
1: want to see it. If, if, yeah. it, if it's if it pulls any triggers for you, yeah. don't. Don't yeah. see it. I'm not going to no encourage need. you. Yeah. Uh,
0: but like, it is... It is mm. Again, sometimes shitty people make impressive cinema. Yeah. We've seen this time and time again, and in fact, uh, I have one. Oh boy, <laughs> not quite as controversial as, <laughs> sure. as El Topo. Talking about
1: fucking but, Polanski, but or some something. no, oh, not right. Polanski,
0: not Polanski, but someone who was recently in the news being a real shit. Oh
1: great! Uh,
0: but uh, David Mamet <laughs> has oh, written God. has has directed some really good movies. Mm. House of Games in particular is excellent.
1: I love House of Games. And House of Games is,
0: is an excellent motion picture. He's done other good ones as well. Like, uh, he's I also like the
1: Spanish Prisoner.
0: Yep, Spanish is okay. I like, uh, I like that too. Heist is very good too. Heist is, Heist is excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also written several screenplays for other people or co-written several screenplays, including The Untouchables, which is a great motion picture. Uh, he also did a thriller, which is one of those movies that nobody talks about until someone brings it up and then everyone agrees that it's great. So let's talk about the edge. Yeah. <laughs> I I
1: figured you'd do this. You really? You thought you, you assumed I'd go for the edge? Well, I know you love this movie.
0: Okay, it, it doesn't come up very often, so I'm actually surprised you remembered it. Uh, the Edge uh, came out in 1997. It was directed by Lee Tamahori, uh, who has an interesting kind of eclectic career. He did Once Were Warriors, which was very well respected. But also, and James he did, Bond movie. He yeah. did Die Another Day, which I don't blame him for. That was that's a They just make those, don't they? Um, But um, The Edge stars Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin and Harold Perrineau and Elle McPherson and Bart the Bear. Uh, Alec Baldwin plays a bookish billionaire who has married a trophy wife, played by Elle McPherson. He doesn't seem to have, like, too many illusions about that. Uh, but he isn't entirely sure if uh, his uh, friend, played by Alec Baldwin, younger man, handsome man, this is '90s Baldwin when Baldwin was speaking to other guys in the in the in the news, uh, very handsome era for Alec Baldwin. Thinks maybe they're having an affair. Uh, they are off in uh, the Alaskan mountains. Uh, they decide to go on a trip to. Explore, they end up getting caught in what is called a bird strike, which is when a flock of birds basically runs right into a propeller plane and clog up the gears, and the plane crashes.
1: The birds aren't striking the plane; it's an engine suck. <laughs> yeah, the birds
0: aren't. The birds aren't. The birds aren't getting anything out of this. Mm. I can't imagine. Um, they end up crashing in the middle of nowhere. They were already way off course. No one has any way of knowing exactly where they are, and now Alec Baldwin. Anthony Hopkins and Harold Perrineau are gonna in the unenviable position of having to find a way to walk back to civilization. And wouldn't you know it, the only person who can get them out of this isn't the rugged tough guys. It's it's uh, Anthony Hopkins because he reads a lot. And he actually, like, knows a lot about the wilderness and has, like, done things, study like how to make a compass out of a needle and nothing else. Uh, so... It's an interesting sort do, of macho do, do film. Do you know how to do that? Uh, vaguely. You, uh, have to, you have to like rub it so that it like magnets... You, you, you have to magnetize it? Yeah. You know, if
1: you have a magnet, you rub yeah. a rub a needle on it. Yeah. Rub it on a needle. Uh, you put it on a leaf. Yeah. And you float the leaf in a, a water vessel of some kind. And then it'll point towards uh, magnetic and, and it'll turn in, in the water.
0: Yeah. It's neat. Uh, so at first they think, okay, well, this is a horrible situation, but at least we'll be able to make it back. And then a bear hits them. Just... Kills the fuck out of one of them. And now they're... Not only are they exiting the Alaskan wilderness, but they're being pursued by a bear. So, beautifully Shakespearean. Ah, uh, isn't that cute? Yeah. Um, uh, rest in peace, Bart the Bear. Rest in uh, peace, Bart uh, the d- Bear. Died in 2000. Yeah, iconic bear and actor. Excellent bear Bart, actor. Bart
1: Bear was in uh, Legends of the Fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, White Fang. Yep. Yeah. You have a trained bear. There's not gonna. There's not like a slew of trained bears. Yeah, there's only there's only enough work for so many yeah. trained bears. So Bart work. did
0: most of the work in the in the nineties. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but Bart, Bart the bear was great.
1: Uh, uh, Bart Bart the bear was the title character in Clan of the Cave Bear. Oh, uh, was he? Really? Bart, Bart the bear was, was he the also cave. was he also the bear? Uh, no. Ah, Bart the bear was not the bear. That was Dang. That was a different bear. Anyway, um, Bart the bear well, uh, wandered around the city in twelve monkeys. Oh, was that also Bart the Bear? That was Bart the that Bear. Good for Bart the Bear.
2: <laughs> anyway, uh,
0: this is a, this is a great survival film. This is a great survival thriller. It's an intelligent survival thriller that isn't just about, uh, action, and it's also, it's actually about, uh, a, a battle of wits between, uh, man and the wilderness, and also man and, man less is, interesting man. Well, I
1: was gonna say, <laughs> man, man versus man, but really, ego versus ego. Yeah. This is about, uh, pride for both of these guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's sort of the the brilliance of David Mamet's script. Mm-hmm. And Lee Tamahori, Lee Tamahori does the action really, really well. But what really sells this film, I think, is the tension yeah. between those two characters. Yeah, uh, that is
0: incredibly vividly drawn. Yeah, yeah.
1: this this uh, tension that you know one is cuckolding the other. Uh, they even use yeah. the word cuckold multiple times throughout the movie. Yeah. And, uh, and
0: the thing is, and once again, as with a lot of stories in which um, people from modern civilization are thrust into life or death situations, mm. uh, all of a sudden, the thing that makes Alec Baldwin seem like, because in society, who's the bigger catch? Hunky Alec Baldwin, successful, or old billionaire? Well, you can have that conversation. Out in the wilderness, who's really going to survive? <laughs> mm. The young, strapping, handsome, muscular man? Or, the smart guy. We might be going smart guy in this situation. And, uh, yeah, it's 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 so witty. It's so smart. It's just absolutely rivetingly told. This isn't one of those movies where, you know, you watch it at home, you get the full experience. I think it's stronger on the big screen. You just get this really great, overwhelming mm. uh, sense of like the, the, the wilderness just swallowing these people up. You know, they're absolutely trapped there. Mm. The bear looks huge, because it is. It's a big-ass fucking bear. Um. Anyway, this movie is this movie is great. I think it rips. I think uh, it absolutely uh, deserves to be kept around in the conversation. I think anytime it comes up, people usually say it's great. Uh, listen to them
2: because
0: mm. <laughs> it's really good. Uh, and uh, yeah, if you're looking for a thriller that uh, doesn't go quite where you're expecting it to go, look for a thriller that's just mm. made for mature people, not mature audiences. Mature people it's about
1: adult concerns, yeah. but
0: it has all the thrills, all the yeah. action that you want. This is a great film, so boom. That's my number ten.
1: Uh, I I like The Edge. I like Good. It. I like it. I I. I it's uh, this not pleases on, me. Not on my list, but uh, I, I do okay. like it.
0: What you got? Um, What's your number nine?
1: Let's see. Well, I I did a cult movie already, so I'm going to do another cult movie. Do it. I'm keep them together. All right. Uh, Paul Bartel's Eating Raoul. I've never seen this. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> this this is a, a delightful little piece of. I love sickness. Paul Bartel. Yeah, Paul Bartel is great. Um. Paul Bartel and Mary Warnoff came as a package deal, and whenever they showed, they 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 weren't a couple. Yeah. Uh, Paul Bartell was gay. Uh, they they weren't ever dating, but mm-hmm. when you saw when you saw one, you saw the other. They always yeah, came ninety
0: nine times out of hundred. Like, sometimes two,
1: you might see Mary alone, but it, usually it was the pair. They're
0: these wonderful character actors. They did a lot of like Corman films together. Mm-hmm. Paul Bartel ended up directing quite a few films and Mary Warnoff was in them. Yeah. And they would sometimes just randomly show up in some movie for one scene. Mm. If you've ever seen the film Chopping Mall with a C,
2: <laughs> which is about a bunch of
0: kids who get trapped in a mall it's like late
1: Jimign- at night, Jim film with yeah.
0: a bunch of robotic security guards that they have like, gone haywire and are going to
1: kill them, like lasers and death weapons on them. Yeah,
0: very silly premise. Uh, there's an opening uh, like press conference where they're introducing the security robots, and they're not important to the plot. <laughs> They have nothing to do. But there they are. <laughs> just Paul Bartel and Mary Warrenov just sitting there being awesome. Uh, they're, they're wonderful actors. Yep. Paul Bartel made some great movies. Yep.
1: Uh, this wasn't his first film. He did Death Race two thousand. I mm-hmm. uh, did a film called Cannonball, uh, which is another race movie. Yeah. Uh, and then he did uh, Eating Raoul, which is a cannibal movie. Ah. Eating Raoul is literal. Okay. So there's a guy named Raul. There's a guy named Raul, played We're by eat uh, him. Uh, Raul is played by Robert Beltran, who had gone to play Chakotay on Star Trek Voyager. Oh shit, I didn't know who was in that. Yeah. yeah, oh, he's, neat. He's Raul. Cool. Um uh, Paul Bartel and Mary Warnoff play a married couple uh, named the Blands. And Man. uh when a drunk, Like a drunken, perverted swinger guy sw- wanders into their apartment and, uh, and assaults Mary Warnoff, like mm-hmm. starts to go after her. Paul uh, defends her by hitting him on the head with a frying pan. And he yeah. dies. Oops. Killed him by accident.
0: Okay. Spoilers.
1: Uh, but they figure, wait a minute, he's just some... They, they, I think they even say he's just some rich pervert. We'll just keep his money and, and, uh, and we'll just sort of cut up his body and, uh. and, and, none's the wiser. And they say, wait a minute, that actually got us a lot of money. Maybe we could keep doing this. So they, they lure, uh, like they lure people into the apartment, like through a promise mm. of sex fetishes and then uh. end up murdering them and taking their stuff. Yeah. Uh, Raul, uh, who is goes, who's going into their apartment because he's in their hire. He's, uh, Paul Bartel also owns like a wine company, I think. And uh, finds the body and says, you know what? We're. I think uh, we can sort of go into an arrangement. I will uh, dispose of the bodies for you. I get to keep all their other stuff, like their cars. I know how to fence that stuff. Right. Uh, and he's the one who's going to dispose of their bodies. They enter this like tidy little arrangement. Uh, and, of course, Raoul begins making the moves on Mary Warnoff. There's, yeah, adding a little bit of tension there. Uh, it sounds like a really deep kind of Hitchcockian thriller, right? Uh, there's a movie that came out uh, about 15 years later called Shallow Grave, which is kind of similar mm. about uh, people who uh, find a dead roommate and they decide to um, yeah. uh, dispose of the body and how that mm-hmm. the guilt of just that act kind of weighs on them. Yeah. Uh, there's no guilt in this. It's actually just kind of peppy fun. <laughs> <laughs> kind of have have a little bit of a party, murdering these people and killing them because Paul Bartel he's a bit of a kook. Uh, when Paul Bartel and Mary Warnoff show up in a movie, you know you're in for a treat just because it's probably something a little bit weird. Uh, we reviewed a really wonderful fil- uh, wonderful TV series on Cancel too soon called "Bone Chillers." Oh yeah, one, one I'm very fond of, uh, and. When, when Paul Bartell and Mary Warnoff showed up in like episode six, it's like, Oh, now I know where we are. <laughs> We're way over here in the cult corner. This, this is a bizarre thing. I, this, I understand what's going on. Eating Raul was sort of like the clarion call of, of those two, even though they had been around for a while. Um, Oh, uh, was, was rock, rock and Roll High School was after this I think
0: no Rock and Roll High School or, was like late 70s
1: uh, Eating Roll was 82 I yeah know. P.J. Rock and Souls Roll had that was, brief blip in like 70s. Yeah, yeah
0: the late 70s yeah Rock High School is awesome by the way if you've never seen Rock and Roll High School it's, it's like got, a legit good movie it's yeah. got so much it's got all the teen energy you want from anything mm-hmm. is just Mary Waranoff plays this evil principal uh, fucking great
1: Principal Togar I think is her name yeah and then right. I think
0: uh, in the and Roll High School forever she comes back as Principal Vader
1: yes <laughs> <serious>. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see Rock Rock and Roll High School forever it's not very comes, good uh, it's yeah.
0: fine you can watch it on TV but it's not very good the original is where it's all out PJ uh, Souls should have had a huge career I don't know why she did not
1: I think people know the, the bit of trivia about Rock and Roll High School that uh, hmm. it's a Corman joint and Corman wanted to make Disco High I want to make oh, a, I don't <laughs> think I did hear I want to make this. a re- rebellious movie about uh, disco oh. teens in high school. But there's a 79. Yeah. Disco is kind of gone. Yeah, it was already it's like, on the way out. So it's like, you know what, let's just go full bore in the opposite direction and we'll get, we'll get the fucking Ramones. Like the actual <laughs> Ramones to play themselves and uh, PJ Souls is the world's biggest Ramones fan and they end up blowing up their school to the sound of the Ramones. Nice. And uh, there's also a 6-foot tall anthropomorphic mouse as a character in the movie.
0: Yes, it does not end well for that mouse. No, I think the mouse survives No, I don't think it does Well, maybe I'm thinking of another mouse Well, the, the other
1: mice all explode
0: Yeah, the, the idea of the movie principal is that To, to, principal to prove that the are, Ramones uh, are a bad influence on our kids
1: <laughs> They play Ramones music for white mice in a lab setting And, they and the explode. mice fucking explode uh, So there's a
0: big scene at the Ramones concert Where you all of a sudden see like There's a like, six foot
1: mouse entering the concert Like and, and just a guy in a mouse concert And they, and they stop the mouse to say this music makes mice explode and he holds up a pair of headphones. Okay. You're good. Okay. (laughs) I don't remember it as vividly as you do.
0: Okay. I'm glad. I'm very glad that it worked out. I
1: haven't seen this movie in a while. That's right. Back to to eating Raoul. Eating Raoul is a a, a sick, nasty little piece of business and it goes into a pretty, pretty dark tales from the crypt kind of place. It is a lot of fun. It's very subversive. It's very sexual. uh, And in that Mm. sort of out on the edge sort of way. Um, yeah, please, right. please seek it out. Um, it was one of those cult movies that was like really difficult to find for a long time, and then yeah. eventually the Criterion collection swept it up. So it's on the Criterion channel. Nice. Uh, okay, well
0: my next pick uh, is okay, so a lot of my films in the in the letter of E's these are like more what we might call genre films, a lot of uh, mm. action type movies, horror films, that kind of thing. Uh, most of them have a pretty good uh, reputation This one kind of doesn't, and it bums me out because I love this movie. Mm-hmm. This is a very inventive movie. There really wasn't anything quite like it when I was growing up. Right. Uh, and I still think about just how absolutely clever and subversive the finale of this film is uh, to this day, and that's Joe Dante's Explorers. I haven't seen Explorers. You've never seen Explorers? No. That feels so weird to me because it's totally your movie. Okay, so the premise of Explorers. Uh, and this is, I, I think it might have been his first film. Ethan Hawke, Teenage Ethan Hawke yeah. teen, teen, Young teen Ethan mm-hmm. Hawk too Like uh, Basically uh, It's uh, Ethan Hawk, Young River Phoenix Like he's Like I'd say teenage little kid.
1: R- Teenage River Phoenix But uh um, yeah, the 20, well, 27 Club um, Yeah
0: anyway uh, But anyway Ethan Hawk, River Phoenix And a young actor Named Jason Presson uh, They are kids In a small town And uh, what they discover is that even though they're all very very different kids Ethan Hawke comes from a very normal suburban family uh, uh, River Phoenix comes from a very nerdy family James Cromwell plays his dad in an early role uh, And Jason Preston is more of like you know Sort of the latchkey kid from the wrong side of the tracks They're all having the same dream hmm. And the dream is very surreal And what they discover and at least what uh, River Phoenix discovers Because he's like the nerdy kid is that they're actually dreaming about science stuff. And one of the first things that he's able to do is he's able to put in these kinds of like weird patterns and programs into his computer and generate a force field. (laughs) They're creating a sphere in the middle of nowhere that is completely impenetrable and using their computer, they can fly it around. And it wreaks a lot of havoc. It breaks a ton of stuff. They can ride around inside it. They can make it bigger. And eventually they realize, we can use this to build our own spaceship. So they do, out of junk that they find in, like, a junkyard. (laughs) And they decide that this town is just not worth it, man. And they're just going to get out of here. They're going to explore the stars together. And then they do. And as soon as they get up into outer space their computer goes haywire, something else is taking control of it, and they're rocketed to another part of the universe where they're picked up by a spaceship, and I'm not actually going to tell you what happens next. Uh, What I will say hmm. is that it's not something I think most people would do today. Hmm. There's a bunch of really cool, like, creature-slash-robot-type design, but it is not about action. It is not about... It's not even really about comedy, although it is funny. Uh... It is actually just incredibly telling about where we are as a culture, yeah. how we view science fiction, and the role children have in pushing us forward, uh, pushing us forward in terms of, uh, growing beyond where, uh, what they were raised as, uh, in terms of, uh, how pop culture influences us and how it changes us, and maybe for the worse, um it's a really neat film this one was taken away from joe dante or rather it was okay so there's a there's an old line that says uh uh what what is it it's a great art is never finished it's just taken away Mm -hmm. uh you know not everyone would necessarily say this painting is done it might keep it around and say like okay a little bit more red right here whatever like that but eventually they just give it away and that painting's done now because it's done
1: yeah Unless you're Ridley Scott or yeah. William Friedkin, well, so a, lot that able to, to, a lot of people are able. A lot of people are able to do that. Shit. Well, what
0: happened was uh, Joe Dante. Uh, they the the movie's release date got bumped up a lot, and he was told, "Just stop editing."
1: Oh, well, that's it. Right. You're
0: done. He's like, "But I'm not, Ashley. You know what? You're done."
1: <laughs> so these, yes, yes, the, you
2: are.
0: So. There was a lot of stuff he wanted to do in the movie. Joe Dante is actually not happy with the way it turned out. There's a lot of stuff he wanted in the movie that he just wasn't allowed to edit into the movie. Weird. <laughs> and yet the movie feels really complete. It feels yeah, like it. a really cohesive, wonderful narrative. You know, there's some stuff about like it was the '80s, and there was a lot more horniness in like adolescent stories. So there's like a, oh, yeah, Ethan Hawke like wants to like look into the window of the girl he has a crush on and they use the technology oh, to like yeah. but it's it's not great but it's not as horrible sadly, as a lot of other shit from the 80s like sadly, it's no revenge of the nerds Yeah, i was about
1: to say sadly commonplace seen as like innocent fun at the time yeah uh, when no, no no thought as to what the young women might be thinking of that yeah yeah it's
0: uh it's uh it's unfortunate but it's not a huge part of the movie um it's inc- it's just incredibly imaginative and it just doesn't feel like it's one of those rare genre movies from any era that mm. doesn't feel like it's ripping anything off. Oh, okay. It doesn't feel like, "Oh, Star Wars was popular, so we did this." Mm. I mean, it's kind of like a bunch of kids go on adventure, but like it's not like The Goonies is a bunch of kids find a pirate ship. Okay, cool. There really weren't like a there really wasn't like a subgenre of, you know, dream force field movies. <laughs> It's a really unusual thing. And I I love this movie to pieces. Uh, I've tried to defend it to Joe Dante, who who heard
1: nothing of it. No, it's (laughs) bad. He was Well, he was unhappy with it. It's a
0: bad experience for him. But uh, the movie turned out good despite the fact that he wanted to do more with
1: it. To go back to Rock and Roll High School for a minute, uh, we got a letter from Alan Arkush, Mm -hmm. that film's director, uh, because we liked his film Caddyshack 2. We did a whole podcast
0: defending Caddyshack 2, which most people hate. Uh,
1: including Alan Arkish
0: Yeah, Alan told us We were wrong to like that movie
1: Like, I'm writing in to say Why are you defending my movie? It's crap Yeah,
0: he was not happy with it Sometimes the people uh, Who make art Are not necessarily The best ones to judge it Because they're really no. close no, to no, it no, no. And uh, sometimes You might make a work of art That you don't think Is that great And it turns out It means a lot to a lot of people And you don't fully appreciate that Until you're told otherwise I remember uh, I interviewed Don Cheadle once Really good interview Nice guy At least it was to me Um and um, i forget how it came up we were talking about he he was one of his earliest roles was in this movie called Volcano which is mm-hmm. not a particularly good movie fun but not a particularly good movie G- good
1: good for people in LA yeah. a lot
0: lot of cheesy LA references a lot of lot of lot of disaster shit
1: they, i think they call the volcano mount wilshire cuz it erupts on <laughs> wilshire boulevard um,
0: but um, he was talking about how like he was out with his mom Hmm. Like at grocery shopping with his mom or something. And someone came up and recognized him. And they said, you're in my favorite movie, Volcano. And he said something to the effect of like, I was like, oh, know, well, yeah, not really, you know, that movie. And then his mom said, hey, they love that movie. <laughs> that movie means a lot to them. Oh. So he's just like, yeah, I don't really... I don't really feel bad about any of my movies. Yeah. Someone likes some good. Somebody likes one of my Yeah, others. so there you go. So I like I like explorers. I think it's a great motion picture. Hmm. I would love to see if they, if they were allowed to do it if they were found the footage. I would love to see this big director's cut or whatever. But what we got is still really good. All right. All right. So there you go. What's your What's your um, next film?
1: Well, I have a science fiction movie on my list as well. Huh. Um, it takes place in the far flung future of 1997. Uh, and... I think I picked the same thing. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, when um, uh, crime has risen 400% in New York City mm. and uh, things have gotten so bad in New York City that they, uh, the government just washed their hands of it and completely illogically yeah. decided to erect a gigantic wall around the island of Manhattan. It's like the most expensive real estate in the country. Whatever. <laughs> Put a big wall around it
0: we're done. Just, uh, yeah, we're, we're cutting it off. We're cutting it we, off. It's anathema to us. It is, it's dead now. And
1: now that there's a wall a around it, it's, island. it's just a prison. The whole island yeah. is just a there's prison. There's no guards. We don't care what you do when you're in there. Oh. Just go there, away. There, there's a few bridges <laughs> and they're mined, and there's, like, armed yeah. guards on the wall around side of uh, yeah. Manhattan. So but just otherwise, a, We don't just care a, what you do.
0: Just stay in there. Don't bother wall. the rest of us. It's
1: just a wild, wild land inside. Yeah. And, uh... Uh, the movie's John Carpenter's Escape from New York, by the way. Yeah, a, <laughs> just to see wondering is. how yeah, many so other films there are with this concept. Uh, is <laughs> escape from, this is Escape from New York. Uh, yeah. It's a really terrific film from the ni- the early 80s. And uh, the plot of the movie is Into this New York sized prison, uh, wouldn't you know it, the president, who is inexplicably English, played by Donald Pleasence, eh. uh, the American president, uh, his plane crash lands because there's a terrorist attack on Air Force One. Yeah. And he gets in a little escape pod, and, he la- and the escape pod lands in New York. Uh oh. Now he's got a little tracker thing on his wrist, so yeah. they know where he is. But they need somebody to go in and get them. Yeah, uh, is Lee Van Cleef going to do it? Oh goodness, no! He's going <laughs> to hire the baddest badass you've ever seen, Snake Plissken. This is played by Kurt Russell. Played by Kurt Russell. <laughs> Kurt Russell. This is
0: this. By the way, this was bold casting at the time. In when Escape from New York came out, Kurt Russell was not a badass. Kerr Russell was not seen as a badass. Kerr Russell was a kid who had done Disney movies like The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes. In one movie, he got to hit Elvis.
1: Well, that's when he was a boy. But well, I mean, you know what I mean. Like, this kick, is the kind of movie... Elvis in the show he, yeah. he,
0: he was a child actor who was known <sighs> yeah. for a certain kind of... Uh, bless you. A uh, uh, very family-friendly kind of fare. Uh, and this was an attempt to basically say... Hey, imagine, if you will, that they had cast in Mad Max Fury Road... Instead of casting Tom Hardy, they cast Zac Efron. Like, that's the level of, like, okay, you want us to accept this? Okay, what have you got? And it turns out he killed it. He Mm. was absolutely great. He played this absolutely awesome, grizzled... He was was doing a
1: a Clint Eastwood impersonation. But he's doing it great.
0: So he's, he's got... he's. He's got an eye patch. He's wearing like white camouflage pants, you know, just in case he needs to hide the bottom half of himself in the snow, and the, uh,
1: the big big boots and yeah. awesome
0: hair. And uh, yeah, he he was used to be a decorated soldier, uh, but ever since uh, he left the future wars. Uh, he has become a notorious outlaw. And at the beginning of the movie, in a, this is a scene that they rightly cut, if you look at the DVD, there's like this really long scene of him pulling a heist and it goes on forever and you didn't yeah, need it. The, uh, yeah.
1: John Carpenter cut it. He, he said there's like a really impressive steady cam shot. Yeah. Or it might have been a panaglide, whatever, whatever the. That's what he used, dude. Yeah, uh, and it's really impressive. And John Carpenter even said uh, in an interview, mm-hmm. like I was just doing that to show off." Yeah, like, I, there, doesn't there's help no, the like, movie there's not really all. an organic reason for me to do this big long pantaglide yeah. shot. I just thought it would be fun, and yeah, yeah. just you just was,
0: the movie. The movie's already started. Like, we, we don't we, need we this need this the shit. premise, and you know, we yeah. could just
1: introduce yeah. Snake Plissken. So Snake Plissken
0: has been arrested, and he's just they're just about to dump him in New York, and instead they shoot an explosive into his neck, and they say. You have...
1: With, I think, with a timer on it. With a timer still, on it. You have 24 explode.
0: hours. I think it's 24 hours. Is it, tw- is it 24 or something oh, like no, that?
1: No, it's, like, it's like 12 hours. It's like no, no, almost no, no. no time at
0: all. No, 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 Escape from, escape from L.A., he's got like the whole... He only got the night. Okay. Yeah. I think, but what happens in Escape from New York is there's a part where he loses Esca- consciousness, so it still is not that much time. Uh,
1: uh, escape from L.A. is Escape from New York. But in L.A. Uh, um Period, that's it it's They just yeah. repeat every, we'll, every we'll, single plot We'll right. get to
0: it in a minute Because I want to talk a little, a little longer conversation about it But uh, he, he has an explosive Put in his neck And he says If you don't return With the president Before this timer runs out Your head's going to explode So he's highly motivated <laughs> Even though he doesn't Actually want to do it And okay. they dump him in They dump him in New York and he's got to find the president. He's got a motion tracker. He quickly finds out that it's... the president's like motion tracker bracelet was immediately just like...
1: It was put on Buck Flower. <laughs> yeah,
0: just, just some random guy yeah, was, just uh... grabbed it off of the president and now he's been walking around with it. I, I'm, I'm the
1: president. Yeah, that, that actor who plays that bum, Buck Flower, play, <sighs> plays, he played the bum in every single John Carpenter movie. He, if was, you, if... he was in Prince of Darkness. Yep. He was in Village of the Damned. Uh, he was in They Live. Yeah. And he played a vagrant in all of these movies.
0: There was a film that we uh, reviewed on Cancelled Too Soon uh, called uh, uh, Bates Motel. It was a TV movie. Mm. It was a backdoor pilot for a television series that would have been about the Bates Motel as a source of a bunch of ghost stories. Mm. When it's going to start Laurie Petty. Hell of a thing. Anyway, there's a moment in Bates Motel where the this camera pans over and we see two iconic Hollywood drunks. Like guys who always play drunks and they always play homeless people. Uh, Usually they play homeless drunks. Buckflower and Carmen Filpy in the same film at the same time. Did you ever see the movie? P- Did you ever see the movie PCU? I saw the movie PCU. There's a there's a there's a subplot in the movie PCU where there's a guy who is majoring. He's 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 writing his thesis on something called the Kane Hackman theory, and the theory goes. That at any given second on television there is either a Michael Caine or a Gene Hackman movie on TV <laughs> so he's literally just watching TV and nothing else the entire movie except right at the end when he's watching TV and he goes oh my god i did it i've gone too far caine and hackman in the same film this is my thesis i did it that's when Buckflower and Carmen Philpie show up <laughs> That's as Homeless Drunks in the same movie. It's that level of right, mind-blowing.
1: That's, that, that's Buckflower in Escape from New York. Anyway, uh, the, but anyway, he's got to meet the, a whole pres- bunch of
0: cool supporting the, characters the and fight a whole bunch is, of people.
1: Yeah, the, the president is in the, the the custody of the Duke of New York, played by Isaac Hayes. Yeah. Uh, and he is uh, touted around town by Cabby, played by Ernest Borgnine. Yeah. Uh, a, a lot of great... Character actor faces meets a criminal
0: mastermind called Brain, played by Harry Dean Stanton. His girlfriend's played by um, Adrian Barbeau. Adrian Barbeau, and it's just a whole bunch of really memorable, exciting characters. There's a great whole bunch of great action set pieces, like a car chase through the minefield, and he's got to like fight like this giant Conan warrior and a bat and like a battle royale
1: to the death.
2: Yeah.
1: You're making it sound like it's an action film. The action is actually really subdued in this movie. it's, yeah. it's more like this like bummer, contemplative science fiction thing. I was kind of getting to that. Uh, where, this is before uh,
0: action movies were like wall to wall action. Yeah, so there's yeah. like there's
1: a few chases. There's that fight scene in in the uh, gladiatorial arena.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, like he fires his gun once and jumps through a wall. which is clearly just like yeah. some drywall. Well, it's a very uh,
0: low budget film.
1: Yeah, yeah, and in fact, uh, John Carpenter, I think, did a really, really great job making it look bigger than it was. Yeah. There are a lot of movies I've seen where like the ideas are pushing against the boundaries of the budget. And yeah. John Carpenter was always really good about working uh, clever ways around that. So it wasn't mm-hmm. shot in New York. No. There's one shot of the New York at the, at the beginning. Yeah. And they make it look like a pan shot, but they pan into darkness. So there's actually a clever edit in there. And then yeah. they pan over, and I think they're shooting in Toronto. There's at least uh, one but, shot
0: where uh, it's like they're in, like, supposedly in Central Park. There's in A Park. Uh, and there's a matte painting of New York in the background. And the person
1: who drew that matte painting? James, James Cameron. Cameron. <laughs> yeah. Just so, fine. Yeah. Uh, so got some uh, talented special effects folks. Uh, and uh, the way uh, they sort of were able to sort of get some production design in this really yeah. low budget movie was they went to um, was it Chicago that I think recently had a big fire? Yeah, uh, wherever that is, they actually shot it. This a big portion of the city had a big fire and. Everything was really kind of burnt out. It looked kind of post apocalyptic. They just ran in there with cameras. Yeah. And shot Escape from New York. They sprayed down the streets so they could light big spaces. Yeah. And now they have a ruined city. It looks like they had like really big production value. Yeah. Uh, I thought for a long time that this was the first movie to use CGI modeling. It wasn't. They actually just built a model.
0: Yeah, uh, it looks like they did because they built yeah, they, a
1: model and they like put like glowing they, stuff around they it. They built it in black, uh, a model of New York and City in black, and yeah, they put these sort of like glow in the dark black light piping on the buildings. Yeah, and as they though they're like really vectors. S- yeah, and they put, filmed it really slow so it looks like a computer model. That's clever filmmaking. Yeah, it
0: looks good too. Um, it's a neat the, looking. Film.
1: The scene where. Uh, Kurt Russell has to break. Snake Plissken has to fly into New York on like this glider, yeah, and because the only safe place to land top of the empire, Or top of the World Trade Center, yeah, uh, takes place uh, in a in reality. Yeah, uh, sure. Wait, well, I mean, was that nineteen ninety Yeah. My point is this: well, no one's gonna. I don't know. Uh, and there, there's this uh, sort of they can't show like a lot of this glider and the glider sort of landing. Yeah. So there's a lot of cutting back to. Uh, like Lee Van Cleef back at home base, sort of like yeah. looking at the the tracking equipment and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and you know exactly what's going on, and it's really tense. And John Carpenter's really kind of uh, atmospheric synth score is really really strong. So you're yeah. getting a lot of feelings through it. Uh, and so we're not actually seeing anything, but we're getting all of the important feelings out of it. We're getting all of the thrill. Uh, that's just yeah. f- f- low budget filmmaking. Well, that's I, like I its wanted to best. get to. There's a lot of
0: like a lot of the stuff that An Escape from New York did. Um, on paper it seems really, really big. In practice, there's something really—it's excitingly grounded—about this fantastical world that John Carpenter has created, where all of New York has become this kind of post-apocalyptic prison. Where, because it's not played up in this big, large comic booky fashion, it's weirdly believable.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's like it's weirdly plausible, even though you know in your head this is all absurd. Right. Uh, And it's really, really awesome. And which brings me to uh, what I was going to do. It's a little different than you. All right. Uh, You mentioned that Escape from LA is basically the same film. That's why I made this a tie.
1: (laughs) Okay. Between New York and LA. Yeah,
0: New York and LA. They're very different films. And I remember when Escape from LA came out, there was a lot of hullabaloo uh, from folks who were huge John Carpenter fans. John Carpenter, between Halloween and I'm trying to think what was the last big, big, big hit. Probably something in the late 80s, I guess. Maybe like mm. They Live or something. Or, uh, but um, between the late 70s and the late 80s, early 90s, John Carpenter was a pretty successful hit machine. Mm. He made films on a modest budget. They made money. They found an audience. They played on TV all the time. People loved them. He was huge. The idea that he was going to make a sequel to Escape from New York was really, really exciting to a lot of people. Everyone was really, really stoked about it. And then Escape from L.A. came out, and they realized what he did, and they said, that's not the movie we had in our head. Mm -hmm. The movie they had in their head was this big, giant action spectacle where everything was totally awesome. And what John Carpenter wanted to do was Escape from New York, but in L.A., and funny. And this is something that John Carpenter even said about Escape from New York. John Carpenter wasn't from New York. John Carpenter didn't know New York very well And he said that if he had known New York He would have put in more jokes Because he thought it was kind of funny To have this like alternate version of this famous city Where everything has gone horribly wrong
1: Well because they didn't film in New York They couldn't make really good use of like New York locations No but
0: he couldn't even like make the references If he really wanted to and he didn't want to be disingenuous and try So when he did Escape from L.A. Escape from L.A. is like Steve Martin's L.A. story But like on asset like action version yeah it's there. a
1: completely sci-fi action thing
0: yeah it is if you're from la or if you spend a decent amount of time here escape from la is fucking hilarious <laughs> <laughs> this is so instead of like gliding into the idea is that there was a giant earthquake and now LA, as they often said would happen in the 90s LA like broke off From the mainland island, and became yeah. an island and, and now turned that
1: into a prison. They
0: turned that into a prison, but they turned that into a prison for mm. undesirables. The idea it's like is an that ultra conservative
1: government in the
0: future an ultra conservative go- and they, honestly, Cliff Robertson plays the president plays him a lot like George W. Bush really ahead of their time on that one because now that mm. one coming. And the idea well, this, was... this like,
1: was the 90s when, like, the rise of right-wing radio and, like, mm-hmm. the, the whole uh, Rush Limbaugh, Newt yeah. Gingrich era. So, yeah, there were a lot of these sort of... It
0: was on the nose.
1: Yeah, right, right-wing politicians. But the idea were, is, like, yeah, there's
0: a lot of criminals there. There's mm. a lot of people who would do bad things. There's also just a lot of, like, queer people. <laughs> yeah. Like, like uh, 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 Pam Greer plays a trans woman. hmm in that and uh, she's uh, like leading a revolution Because there's a lot of people who want off of this fucking island Who can fucking blame them um, The president's daughter gets kidnapped instead of the president Snake is uh, given a virus and told that it'll kill you in a certain amount of time Unless you uh, come back uh, Same exact shit uh, But uh, here it's just a lot more funny When it's, Instead of taking a glider he has to take like a submarine
2: yeah, And uh, in
0: the submarine he has to like It looks. It looks terrible, by the way. It looks really cheap, but like like, there's a part where he has to like fight off the jaws shark from the Universal ride. That's the It's so fucking great. Bruce Campbell plays like the The surgeon general of Beverly Hills. Yeah, Beverly Hills is lorded over by an evil, mad scientist plastic plastic surgeon. surgeon. Played by Bruce Campbell under like really awesome makeup.
1: Harvesting people's faces <laughs> yeah. to on, like on him and his retinue.
0: It's uh, There's a scene in this movie, and if you don't watch this scene and think to yourself, they know exactly what they're doing. They don't think this is cool. They don't think this is funny. So just go along for the ride, because it's a hoot. Uh, there's a scene in the movie where Kurt Russell and Peter Fonda <laughs> surf a tidal wave down Sunset Boulevard. The
1: tsunamis are still a thing, and they cause like, yeah. some bitchin' waves, man.
0: Yeah, they surf a tidal wave, and then when they're surfing this tidal wave, it's too late for Kurt Russell to get out of there. They have to, so he has to learn how to surf real fast and surf a tidal wave next to Peter Fonda. Meanwhile, he sees that Maps to the Stars Eddie, this like... Steve Buscemi. Of, this <laughs> Steve Buscemi kind of Hollywood agent type, uh, is like riding next to the tidal wave on his car. So, so Kurt Russell high fives Peter Fonda says I'm out of here and just surfs on over to that car and jumps J- into the jumps that-
1: off of the wave onto the moving car <laughs> most ridiculous thing oh my thing. god it, again, it's so it, fucking funny it, it's it's really really fun and the, the movie ends with that revolution that, that Pam Greer yeah. is leading where everybody's hang gliding into Disneyland like throwing bombs down into <laughs> Disneyland and shit it's
0: pretty wild. You either, you either I'm sorry. I understand if that's not your jam, but if it is, it's
2: awesome <laughs> shit, man.
0: I have a lot of affection for it. So for me, it took me a while to come around to escape from LA cuz I was one of those yeah, people there's... who just wanted another badass escape from New York. Um, I've come to love I, it. I'll I think s- they're two sides of the same coin. I, the, I like both.
1: Uh, I, I do like them both as well. I think they I think escape from New York looks a heck of a lot better. Sure. I, I think of um, I think Dean Cundy shot that one. Um, I think so. Let me let right. me look up the photographer. Oh, Elliot. I'll I'm, I'm on it. Yeah, the photographer on, on Escape from LA really kind of gave it a, a lot of uh, grit and realism, really put it kind of. He said New York. You uh, New York. Escape from New York, excuse me. Yeah. Escape from it was LA. Dean it, was it was Dean, Dean Cundy. Yeah. Uh, Escape from LA. Uh, It comparatively looks like trash. It it is low-budget trash, and it looks like low-budget trash. The special effects are awful. It's just really terrible. Uh, It was the 90s. They were actually really starting to throw all their weight behind CGI, but it just wasn't
0: there yet. Exactly. Uh, After,
1: after, um, uh, I think, Jurassic Park and maybe Independence Day were the only ones that kind of... Had the budget and the time to make the CGI look kind of impressive, yeah. But even they tempered all of that stuff with practical effects, exactly, like a lot of exactly. like, uh, like that really cool like uh,
0: Harrier jet versus UFO chase in Independence Day. A lot of that was practical, yeah.
1: yeah a lot of that was, and, and yeah, you know, when we see the aliens, they're actually yeah. like tactile things.
0: Yeah, they they knew when to be CGI and when yeah. not to. And I feel like sometimes we should go back to that
1: Independence Day resurgence where like yeah. a, a ship begins building itself around the whole fucking planet. It's like. You can't just build a structure that. Anyway.
2: anyway uh, let's <laughs> move on. Let's move, let's move on. on. Uh, What's your next
0: pick?
1: Okay, because you also had Escape from New York. I had
0: Escape from New York and LA as a tie, All so right. it's fine. Yeah. Um,
1: let's see, what do I have here? Um, oh, well, you know what? Let me go off from uh, a little bit of a link because okay. you talked about Escape from LA. Peter Fonda's an Escape from LA. Peter Fonda's an easy Rider. This is yeah. maybe one of the most embarrassing movies I haven't seen. You haven't seen Easy Rider.
0: It, I know uh, it's such an important motion picture in terms of like Hollywood history and the careers of the people involved, and yeah it just never came up. Yeah, it's it's keeping <laughs> it me to get around to it.
1: Pretty uh, pretty pretty pivotal movie. It yeah. actually took me a little while too because um, yeah, it's one of those. Uh, it came out in nineteen sixty nine. Uh, one of the more important uh, independent films of the time that sort of ushered yeah. in what was called New Hollywood. That is uh, people who were. Uh, educated in film schools were uh, finally directing films. Yeah. Uh, people before that kind of felt it out. They didn't, there wasn't, like, a film school, as yeah. as it were. There was You people, apprenticed,
0: or you got your job instead yeah, you and you worked people, your way up. The idea yeah. of
1: being educated in college on the art of film and studying this great, great uh, vast swath of films that came before mm. was a little bit of a new concept. And uh, that's how we got Martin uh, Scorsese.
0: It's how we got yeah, Coppola. That, that generation
1: yeah. of filmmakers, Scorsese, Coppola, Spielberg, George Lucas, even. Yeah. Uh, and, and, yes, Dennis Hopper, who directed this one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're all sort of film educated and they were all trying to do... Uh, we actually re- uh, recorded an episode about uh, the film Shoeshine yeah. by Vittorio De Sico, which was a little bit of an antidote to the uh, melodramatic artifice of Hollywood. And that's what New Hollywood was trying to do, is trying to cut through all of that artifice. And um, this is very much like uh, On the Road, where we're telling people, leave. <laughs> leave your home. Leave society be part of the counterculture just take to the road and uh you know li- live with hippies take drugs do crime and america deserves it that that's that's the message of something like easy rider yeah what's and, the yeah, plot of easy rider uh it's about motorcyclists go on that's the plot okay <laughs> No, it's about um, these two motorcyclists who are drug smugglers. They're taking uh, cocaine from uh, Mexico into Los Angeles. Um, and, uh, yeah, they kind of ride around the country. They end up in New Orleans at one point, which is not between Mexico and Los Angeles. They just sort of, uh, yeah, they're just hippie, hippie communes. And uh, throughout, we kind of get this sense that there is this kind of entropy going on in Los in. The United States—that culture is sort of broken down, and the only way to really survive is through this near nihilistic view of riding, riding the, the roads on your motorcycle. Yeah. Uh, you know, just have sex and kind of disconnect. And whenever they try to uh, latch onto anything, uh, it, it doesn't really go so well. They end up picking up a, uh, uh, a few uh, uh, companions on the way. Uh, most notably, Jack Nicholson, is in one of his uh, more early notable roles, and he starts sort of falling for this lifestyle. It's like this. I, I think I could kind of do this. Things don't end well for anybody, really. Mm. The country essentially fights back against this against this lifestyle. That's sort of you yeah, know, we're gonna we're we gonna, can't gonna, have any of that. We're, we're gonna sort of go off and be counterculture and like the extreme right wing culture, kind of. By the end of the movie, kind of destroys all of that. Uh, Karen Black is in it. Uh, Tony Basil is in it. Mm. It's uh, what I was really uh, astonished to find is uh, there's a lot of films from the 1970s that I heard a lot about. Of uh, heard a lot about as a youth. I was born in the late 70s, I, so I, I wasn't watching these movies. So I've heard about things like Easy Rider and Saturday Night Fever about these sort of Light, frothy, fun movies about how great it was to live in sort of uh, these like outsider cultures. These are actually some pretty dark movies. Saturday Night Fever, most shockingly, you think that's just going to be oh, oh, it's fun. It's the white suit. It's you know yeah, it's a dance movie, right? And we're going to dance. Everyone's going to have dancing, and it's fun. There's like a lot of like struggle and drugs and cussing and there's scenes of sexual assault and suicide in that movie. It's really really rough stuff in Saturday Night Fever. And same with Easy Rider. Easy Rider is not fun. You know, it's the, the same kind of shock you might find the first time you read On the Road. On the Road isn't about being free. It's about freedom kind of being your only option because the rest of the, rest of the world is so awful. Right. And I feel the same way about Easy Rider. I'm watching this and I'm just getting more and more depressed as these people fall <laughs> down this pit of aimlessness that is kind of their only freedom but is the same thing that's going to destroy them. Uh, it's great. Cool. It's a wonderful comment on what was going on in America at the time. Uh, Peter Fonda has the nickname of Captain America. He's got a Stars and Stripes helmet. Mm. You can consider it a Captain America movie if you like. Easy Rider is the best Captain America movie. Okay, okay. The Guest is the best. Uh, oh, yeah, but the Guest leader. is actually yeah. the... Well, The Guest is more
0: of a U.S. agent movie. If we're oh, being technical. Oh, split hairs,
1: <laughs> I love Easy Rider. Uh, uh, I uh, it's another one that's on the Criterion Collection uh, it's it's one of those movies that I feel weird about recommending just because it's been around for so much but it took right. me a long time to see this one I think I didn't see Easy Rider yeah. until I was in my 30s so I, yeah I hmm. give you a little bit of grief Well, me a while.
0: well speaking of grief because I know you're going to give me some shit for this uh-huh. but uh, you know we're talking about the generation of uh, you know the, the, the that new the Hollywood, Hollywood generation Hollywood. where people uh, emerged from film school and they made films like Easy Rider and they made films like The Godfather and they made films like Star Wars and, they like Star Wars and then they kept making Films like Star Wars, but at least a couple of those other Star Wars' are good. And so, I'm gonna well, give Star, some
1: Star Wars became the establishment, unfortunately. It yeah, did, yeah. but
0: I'm gonna give it some credit because The Empire Strikes Back fucking rules.
1: Yeah, whatever, I know. When he's <laughs> <Whitney's> <laughs> gonna
0: be dismissive, he's gonna do his He's he's too cool for it. He doesn't, he doesn't like Whitney, yeah. after all these years, doesn't understand why all you kids are eating those Applejacks. Cause they, those th- they don't taste like apples, you understand that, right? Let me, let me explain something to you real fast. Not that long ago, and I mean like within the last year or so, I tried Apple Jacks for the first time. Oh, all right. They tasted like apples. I don't know what the fuck is wrong. They well, taste a up. little like apples. Look, look, they got a little cinnamon on them, but they taste a little like apples. <laughs> what the hell is the matter with parents in those commercials?
1: More, more accurate uh, accurate description would be uh, sugared cardboard. Those things taste like crap.
0: Okay, well, maybe I'm eating yeah. shitty apples. My point is this. <laughs> My point is this. Old Man Whitney doesn't care for Empire Strikes Back. Grump, uh, grump, grump. Okay. Yeah, it's the fine.
1: Direct your hate mail toward me. It's fine. No, no,
0: it's fine. It's fine. He's, I, he's I, totally I, entitled. I
1: don't hate the movie. I don't no, hate the movie. No, but just...
0: you you prefer the original, which I can appreciate. I, I, I don't think I the original ver,
1: is... Very much... Of, yeah. of all the Star Wars I've seen, and I've seen all 15 of those movies, yeah, uh, I, I think the first one is the best one. I
0: think there's a great argument to be made for that. I honestly think mm-hmm. that, for me, it's between the first two. The Last Jedi is creeping up there. You know, I love that movie. but I like that one, too. Yeah. But I think the first two are great. And they're doing different things, though. And I think that's one of the things I love about it. The original Star Wars is this grand, uh, glorious pastiche of pop cinema Mm. Uh, and we did a whole I'm series better. of that of on uh, episode zero, just talking about the films that influenced mostly the A New Hope, but we did talk about some of the films that influenced the other films in the series. Um, and I love original Star Wars. Original Star Wars is a great motion picture. Uh, it is about recapturing, you know, youth. It's about basically telling all those Flash Gordon stories the way kids actually think. Thought they were kind of experienced them. Well, then- yeah, like you know, we, the kids weren't didn't notice the budget; they just noticed the imagination. Well, what if the movie could match what the kids saw in their heads? That's what Star Wars was. Empire Strikes Back was about taking that and now subverting it and doing something a little bit more adult with it, a little bit more thoughtful with it, and actually kind of contradicting some of the things people thought they knew. So, what seemed really, really clear cut. Oh, there's that Vader guy. Yeah, he killed your dad. Yeah, we would uh, never subvert your expectations by uh, contradicting what we've set up in this film, in the second film in the trilogy. Well, no, 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 no. Well, that, that would look, that would ruin first everything.
1: First of all, they weren't using the word trilogy. I yet. know. My,
0: whatever. Who cares? I'm I'm making a parallel here. Right. My point is this. Uh, that's the one where all of a sudden, what you thought you knew, you didn't. And it turns out the main bad guy for the whole series was the was Luke Skywalker's dad. Spoiler alert. All right, We've got a, a film in which the main cast, the cast that everyone loved and saw multiple times over and over again in the theaters, get split up. And they actually have to spend most of the film in parallel storylines. That's actually kind of a bold choice for a genre film. Uh, Usually, genre film sequels were about sort of rehashing what had been done in the past. Here, we're actively trying to go beyond that. Previously, we only had a couple of minutes of someone saying, hey, the Force is a thing. Well, now, we actually have an entire subplot where Luke's in every... Learns a little
1: bit more about what that means. And he
0: learns that, basically, a lot of the shit that he took for granted isn't real. And, Mm -hmm. indeed... The important thing is to achieve a higher state of consciousness and to get over the idea that violence is going to solve all of his problems. And they actually like become one with the universe, which of course he rejects. And at the end, because of plot reasons, which you know, it's a plot, isn't it? Uh, there's I a lot of that.
1: Really... They like continue to pursue that in Star know. Wars and so on. And, and you know, when you finally know the Force, it's like you'll ascend into light or something. Well, they do that in Last Jedi. Well, they, they do not, that in the Star Trek The Motion Picture is what they do. Well, they do that too. There's
0: also... <laughs> there's also. I, I, I'm not going to... I hate pull this card, but I watched some of the Star Wars animated shows, and they mm. do talk about that a bit more there, because they have more time oh, to. Uh, so, at the very least, that is in there. It's a, they talk about mm. it a bit more in Rebels, which I appreciated. Um, but, um, yeah, so it's daring structurally... It's actually a lot more focused on, because the plot isn't as run, 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 got to do this, got to get that MacGuffin, Mm. uh, we actually have a lot more time for the characters to just interact and spend time with each other, which is one of the reasons why I think we have such strong connections to those Mm. characters throughout the whole series is because in this one, they got to actually have their romance. They got to actually explore their feelings.
1: I I suppose. There's, um, I I like all the bit with uh, with Mark Hamill and Yoda on, on the swamp planet. Yeah. Uh, Because that's sort of getting a little bit more at the meat of what this sort of fantasy conceit is about. And they actually sort of are delving into this spiritual territory. Yeah. Um, uh, It's... Spoken in very broad terms, sure. like it, it, yeah, it, it, it's still it, a Hollywood it, it movie. It surrounds yeah. us. It you know binds yeah. us together. In what way exactly? Like they don't yeah. don't get too deep into it, but they do make yeah. it feel like it's something larger than what we. Make, seen it, make it feel him.
0: like a proper religion for once. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: and and yeah, like, like he has these vision quests, and you mm-hmm. know, it's like meditating while standing on his hands. I like all that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, over on the other half of the movie, it's uh, Harrison Ford and Carrie yeah. Fisher are uh, on on uh, um, the Millennium Falcon, and yeah. they're just. And they're just sort of on the run. Well, they're like, screwed. They're not, they're not actually, going anywhere. They're just sort well, of they're, on the
0: run. They're, well, they're they're at the beginning of... The, what's, the beginning, what's the movie called? The Empire Strikes Back. Hmm. That happens the very first... Well, not the first scene, but almost hmm. I, the first I, scene. Yeah, I don't, the, uh... Empire, the Empire blows the shit out of the rebels, and now all the rebels hmm. are scattered and fleeing for their lives, and their whole half of the story is, here are these awesome heroes who saved the day before, and they've never been more screwed, and they're hmm. actually on the run the whole time, being chased by Darth Vader hmm. and Boba Fett. And then they're betrayed by the person they thought was their friend, and so it's basically just a different kind of stakes. They're telling Uh still a story that requires them to go to a bunch of different exciting locales, get in a bunch of cool set pieces, Mm. all that kind of stuff. It's fun. But we're basically trying to tell a sequel, but using that that idea of serialization that Flash Gordon had, where... Each successive chapter was a sequel to what came before, but it wasn't about rehashing it. It's about trying to take you to the most exciting next place
1: possible. Yeah. So they, they're on the run, and there's there's this complete aside that has nothing mm-hmm. to do with the movie, where they, they like fly into a hole, yeah. and they just land the ship in there. It's like, okay, we're safe in here, and everything starts moving around, and there's these yeah. monsters they, flying around. They need a moment. Basically, uh, it's
0: there for pacing purposes. They need a moment. So, yeah. They need a break. They need a moment for Harrison Ford and Leia to talk about their relationship and like and to like hmm. kiss and then immediately okay good we got that out of the way you were inside the giant monster yeah, it we we're out doing they, a pinocchio to thing of a big Boom. monster yeah. and to fly out again yeah did uh, you know that that that, that, uh, that space worm that lives in that asteroid uh, has a name of course and i don't i'll ma- first name of- that's not just the name of a species that guy has an actual name mm. his name is Sayo,
1: Cy, what's his family name? What's his So I think o. Is, I think is, o is the family name. Uh, so Cy is his Christian name. psy <laughs> O. They
0: decided that in one of the stories, apparently. I found that out.
1: You know what I fucking hate about Star Wars? <laughs>
2: I feel like we got kinda of, But here's but here's
0: the thing. I feel like some of the things that frustrate some people about Star Wars mm. is this weird, distracting attention to detail, which yeah, it can be fun in a nerdy way, but it's kind of missing the point it's, it's, of the stories. It's, it's you're, supplanted
1: you're, the story itself. You're in losing any way. the
0: whole thematic reason why these stories existed and were told in the first place. And I feel like Empire Strikes Back is spending most of its time expanding on that mm. and actually challenging these childlike stories that were. Uh, uh, captured so beautifully in the original and basically just saying like okay and now we're gonna do some different stuff Hmm. we're gonna put these people in different situations we're gonna force them to grow up we're gonna force them to grow apart we're gonna put them in you know situations where they're they don't have the upper hand and it's gonna end on a bummer like it's gonna end with them Mm. like in a bad place like that's actually also pretty daring for a movie that's not the you don't usually like end a movie before the end of the movie
1: (laughs) that was pretty bold like
0: that's that's like it's not not just like oh that guy got away maybe there'll be a sequel like no 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 no." we know there'll be another one we're one of the few movies in history at that point that can comfortably say we know there's going to be another another one one, so we can actually end this with nothing resolved also pretty daring so but, and just in terms of, like, I, I doing so. some daring um, stuff on a giant Hollywood budget it level, I got to give it some credit.
1: Well, it wasn't all bad. Uh, yeah. you know, C-3PO got blown up. That was good. Uh,
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, but, nah, you're right. You're not, right. That's, not, that's not, true. It's true. Not, not yes. a huge fan of that character, especially in that movie where he's just sort of, like, yeah. off to the side and has, like, really nothing to do. Yeah. Um, I, I think one of the things that I... I prefer about star wars as opposed to the empire strikes back yeah is uh a star wars does draw on this sort of like grander cinematic tradition i feel like it's linking into film history in this uh very more immediate kind of way it feels like an old serial and as such all of like the clunky uh dumbness Mm -hmm. of that kind of world is intact yeah and and i feel like when they made The Empire Strikes Back, they kind of changed it around to say, "No, these characters are important to you now." Yeah,
0: we have to take this seriously now. And and, yeah.
1: and that wasn't something I wanted out of Star Wars. I wanted it to be a little bit more uh, a little bit more frothy when they're mm-hmm. saying, "No, no, we're we're gonna take a character whose his name is Luke Skywalker." Yeah, that's like a a Flash Gordon yeah. kind of a name. The rugged I mean, yeah. the rugged loner is named Han Solo. Han Solo, and he tools around with a, a sasquatch. You know, it's like. <laughs> And a flying saucer. This is all, like, fun B-movie kind of stuff. And I feel like all of that's completely absent from
0: the Empire Strikes Back. I don't know about completely, but I do agree that the perspective has shifted a lot. And I think...
1: it's, it's, It's downbeat to the point where it feels like... They're, they're missing what I liked about And, I, and you know what?
0: I'm willing to bet that you weren't entirely alone on that when this mm. movie came out, and I think about this a lot. Mm. When I think about that weird backlash to The Last Jedi, yeah, okay. when I think about, like, because The Last Jedi follows the template of The Empire Strikes Back actually weirdly closely in terms mm. of structure, separates the characters, mm. big revelations that kind of contradict what you expected yeah, from before.
1: that ends up yeah. bad, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Uh, turns out that the great hero from the previous trilogy has now been living in isolation, mm. and, you know, actually has a lot to learn like there's there's a well yoda didn't have a lot to learn i think he should have he abandoned this he abandoned this all when he could have killed the emperor fuck you yoda but uh
1: i liked uh, the last jedi because it's actually it's coming after decades of star wars traditions right now Now it's like has a lot to fly in the face of exactly a lot to deconstruct exactly which is why i think one of the reasons why that maybe
0: had a slightly harsher response because it was the it was deconstructing So much Star Wars, whereas Empire was mostly just trying to shift the focus from the original. But it's still doing the same stuff. And I bet there were some people who were kind of bummed that Luke hardly spends any time with Leia in that movie. You know, like that would—they were kind of pitching that as like, oh, is this going to be like a love triangle or something? No, barely, they barely—they barely have two yeah, scenes a- together in that film. You know, there's there—everyone's divided now. There's all this new extra stuff about the Force that we're just supposed mm-hmm. to accept. Darth Vader's his father? What? You just lied well, to us. There's no way that's true. I assure you, in Return of the Jedi, we're going to find out that that was a lie. I'm sure I, someone had that theory.
1: I, I kind of hoped it was actually yeah. uh, that that Darth Vader would say, uh, "You're not really my father." No, of course not. I was just fucking with you. But I'm, how I'm satisfying go... could that possibly be? I mean, it's not I satisfying. Think, it's, it turns, it's, I think of you know turn uh, Darth Vader into like a little bit more of a, a trickier, lying kind of character. But that he's, would make not. Interesting he's not. He's not
0: Loki. He's just
1: this. He's, he's this
0: Black Knight who just sort of stands there and, like, "I am quite evil." But, it, and but I will he, hurt you. But then
1: he says, I am your father. It's like, well, that, that doesn't mean anything. Like, yeah. okay, you're his father. Okay, who's, who's
0: my man? mom? Uh, Mon Mothma. I don't know her yet. You will.
1: Wait, but who's Mon Mothma? Mon
0: Mothma was the woman who led the uh, Resistance in Return of the Jedi. She had like okay. the short hair, and then she came oh, back. She yeah, yeah. came she back did, like, in Rogue the robe, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And
1: they got a, like a like her daughter or something. I think yes, they got or some just of a little, lookalike. Someone looks a lot like her, yeah, yeah.
0: Anyway, right. we're right. off with we're off the thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, right.
1: Let's stop talking about Star Wars.
0: I, I'm happy to. Right. I just I think credit desert, credit where credit is due. All right, let's move on. What do you got next?
1: Uh, what do I have next? Let's see. Um, I don't know, Whitney. Let's go from The Empire Strikes Back. To uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Oh, this is on mine as well. Oh, good. Um, Eyes Wide Shut was Stanley Kubrick's last film. It came out in 1999. It starred Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman as soulless people. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Wow.
0: You don't even need to finish... Mm. <laughs> your social critique there We've got to see,
1: <laughs> By framing it that way I think we
0: have some sense of where Whitney's going with that mm. And well, it's a little harsh
1: A little harsh Well, uh, it was based on a, a novel by an author named Arthur Schnitzler, I believe and um, uh, Called uh, Dream Novel was the oh. title of the book Or Trom Novel." Trom Novel, And uh, it's about a married couple A, a doctor, and I think she's um, a teacher <sighs> Um, Something like that. Something She's like definitely that. professional, yeah. But uh, it, it's significant that he's a, a medical doctor. Yes. Uh, and uh, at in the at the first scene in the movie, they go to a fancy dress ball of a, a client of, of his, played but, by uh, Sidney Pollock. Sidney Pollock. And while they are there, a lot is laid down. Mm. Uh, for, uh, one thing that happens is uh, he's they're separated. He's mm. called off to look after... Not, a, not like, There's like no, no, physically just, They're the physically film. separated. Yeah. They're a married couple. Uh, yeah. He goes off to help Sidney Pollack, who, as it turns out, has uh, a young woman he's having an affair with who's had, uh, suffering a drug or overdose. Yeah, and, and he has Tom Cruise to is a doctor. Her. He's got to help her so out. He's uh, got to help her out. And... He's discreet enough that he can take care of it without getting mm-hmm. him into like him or her into any kind of legal trouble.
0: Meanwhile, uh, uh, Nicole Kidman is trying someone who's trying to seduce Nicole Kidman yeah, on the on the, the dance floor. Uh,
1: uh, this uh, handsome Bailey Lugosi type uh, is like sort of seducing her in really cheesy way. Have you ever read Ovid on the art of love <laughs> and uh, and after uh, Tom Cruise leaves uh, helping um, or not this actually happens before he's helping Sydney uh, Pollock, but he is also being seduced. By these two young models. And they're going to like carry them off. And they say, uh, also really cliched way. Do you want to go where the rainbow ends? Uh, They go back to their apartment after the party. They smoke some weed, which is laced with God knows what. Because they're really zonked (laughs) out. Yeah,
0: whoever whoever Uh, did that scene is like, that is not what people are like on weed. This is just
1: what the pot is saying. It's like, (laughs) no, it's not the pot. That's pot and like a gallon of gin. There's like something something weird going on. But uh, they're talking about how they were... They recognized that the other was being seduced. They mm. witnessed these things. Yeah. And they said, uh, well, I, I wasn't, And uh, Tom Cruise says, I wasn't tempted. I'm married to you. Yeah. And she's like, why weren't you? You could have done that. Yeah. You're a hand. you look like Tom Cruise in 1999. You could have done it. <laughs> I look like Nicole Kidman. I could have done it too. And, yeah. and uh, he's like, well, yes, but I know like, you wouldn't. Then. Yeah. I know you wouldn't. And it's like, mm. well, and you know, women yeah. don't think like that anyway. And she says, let me tell you something. Yeah. Uh, I saw this soldier once. And I would have left you in a second if he asked
0: Yeah we were on vacation This guy just looked at me And seriously if he had said I want you to leave your family right now We're just gonna go off and fuck for the rest of our lives And she said I would have done it if he had asked He did not Mm. And that That shatters his ego Mm.
1: E- ego specifically very specifically and he goes off into this weird dream world and it plays like a dream like, yeah. it's like little episodic he, he's uh, called out of, because yeah. one of
0: his clients was dying or died yeah but, and, but, he, but like he, he, he leaves yeah. one of his
1: clients dies and everywhere he goes in this dreamlike sort of way mm-hmm. he encounters some sort of sexual tension with the character yeah he
0: meets. someone every single person he meets responds to him sexually either they want to have sex with him or or they uh, are somehow violent in, uh, like, there's a bunch of guys who, like, make fun of him for his sexuality because yeah. they think he's gay. Uh, there's a, mm. uh, uh, he almost to I, I s- think
1: it's a really interesting bit, actually, when yeah. they respond to this guy walking down the street and these, like, homophobic jock guys just yeah. sort of, like ma- like throw gay slurs at him because and he's like and he's really taken aback by that because he's done nothing yeah and they're just sort of like throwing these slurs it's like that that's like a nightmare sort of thing or are well, just being it's, attacked well and that's and it's also something we'll just deal a, with a, yeah like, a, a rather unfortunately common experience but it
0: also filters in through his mm-hmm. own subconscious and his own basically his sexual confidence has been completely shaken and he no longer knows what a sexual identity is, yeah, and, and, and this all he, leads to. There's yeah. A,
1: yeah, a bit with a sex worker. Uh, then he ends up running into a friend of his, and I, in another, and again in this weird dream, dreamlike way, his name is Nick Nightingale, and Nick Nightingale uh, lets slip while he's talking on, on a cell phone, 1989, very much of a novelty. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got a he's a piano player, and he has a gig later on at a secret location, mm-hmm. and he mentions. Weird stuff happens at the secret location.
2: Yeah, I have to it's play like, blindfolded. The I, play, entire time. I play
1: blindfolded, but one time the blindfold wasn't on, and I saw, and it's like this weird orgy. Like yeah. this, I, I, you have no idea what's going on. And and Tom Cruise says, "I gotta go."
0: Yeah, so, so he, he gets himself a mask and he goes over there and he wanders into the orgy and he is discovered and it goes bad, yeah, it bad. And, and,
1: the, and the rest of the movie. Uh, and that's only about halfway through the film. Yeah, yeah, uh, and. The the uh, the iconography of that orgy has now leaked out into the popular consciousness. Oh yeah, that's just what this orgies is what rich like people, people do now. Yeah, it's these masked orgies where you wear cloaks and have. There sex was that there was that
0: story in the news where that one asshole was just like, yeah, it turns out all these rep- other Republicans like invited me to sex parties. Everyone's first thought was eyes wide shut. Eyes wide shut. Yeah. Everyone's first thought.
1: That's where he got the idea. I'm sure it was. But uh, anyway, yeah. Eyes, so um. But the rest of the movie, I think, is very interesting because leading up to that, everybody reacts to him sexually. Yeah. After that, people still react to him sexually, but now he is guilty. Yeah. He reacts to everything with overwhelming guilt about what happened that
0: night. And indeed, every single thing... Even though
1: he didn't have sex with anybody. He didn't
0: have sex with anybody, but everything he thought, Hmm. everything he was tempted to do, goes horribly awry, and he sees that everything around him has been sort sort of like... it, he he was this close to ruin hmm. at every second. The sex worker that he almost had sex with, he finds out that she, she was, was HIV positive. Basket, he yeah. found it out like that morning. So yeah, like he I mean, he almost had sex with. He yeah. almost endangered his health. The, that uh, could have happened.
1: The actress who plays the sex worker's roommate is played yeah. by an actress named Faye Masterson from The Lost Skeleton of Cadaver. She was also in The I, Quick I and met, the Dead. I met her once. She's yeah. very kind.
0: Yeah, I I actually was a fan. I like Faye yeah. yeah. Masterson. Um, but um, anyway. So this is a story about someone who's... This is a story about the manly ego. This is a story about uh, the fragile uh, masculine identity. And what happens when that is shaken. And how you could argue that the whole movie is a dream. You could argue that the simple fact of wondering if maybe his wife might even conceive of being sexually attracted to someone else. Mm. Was such... A nightmare to him That it just affected Every single thing He, he saw mm. And all, Everything got put Through a weird filter And gradually became A nightmare mm. You gotta wonder How literally You're supposed to take The orgy sequence
1: Yeah It's, it, it, it's a lot of, hell of a film. A lot of it feels Really symbolic And uh Stanley Kubrick has been uh, accused of being a very cold filmmaker, and hmm. I, I think you know, you go to some of his earlier stuff like Paths of Glory or, or even Dr. Strangelove. Those are a lot more human movies uh-huh. than some of his later ones, which are actually very stagey and kind of kind of coldly laid out. Uh, you look to something like The Shining. The, there, You could make an argument that Shelley Duvall's character doesn't even exist as just a figment in Jack Nicholson's brain. Uh if, if you want to take that critical tack. i uh, never uh, heard
0: that one before, but okay. Oh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I've right. um, heard, heard... I've heard no, a million than, theories about The, one, the Shining, yeah, the but Shining somehow, somehow that out.
0: one never got no, it never got around. Okay. Uh,
1: I feel like that coldness comes uh, into play to great effect in yeah. something like Eyes Wide Shut because the sexual acts, just fucking, mm-hmm. uh, is turned into something about your own ego, isn't it? It's turned into something that is intellectualized in some yeah, way. It's, yeah, it's something that you've sort of internalized, you've made it part of your identity, but it's never ever, not once in this movie, until the very last line, uh, about connecting to another person. Yeah. It's not about a relationship with somebody else. It's about yeah. something that happens to you or something you do to someone It's about the else. importance
0: that we place upon it. Yeah, yeah.
1: I would actually argue,
0: I've, I've heard this before, that Kubrick is a, is a cold or mm-hmm. uh, uh, in, purely intellectual filmmaker. I disagree. All right. Um, I see how you get there, though, mm-hmm. because I think over time, Kubrick's uh, uh, approach was to tell stories about extremely emotional people, mm-hmm. people who had very complex inter-emotional worlds and people who often uh, dealt with it very directly. The Shining is a perfect example, uh, but he views them clinically like it's like he's looking at them through the window at an institution. Mm. But what's going on in there, which he is directing as well, is profoundly emotional. It's profoundly rich psychologically. Mm. Uh, so I don't quite agree with that, but I see that approach. But yeah. But anyway, um, yeah. Eyes Wide Shut. I agree. It's it's a, actually in a weird way not unlike the Explorers. Uh, Kubrick died after completing the first cut.
1: Yeah.
0: This so might not have he, been he what it turned that. out. to This this is complete, but it's, did, it's yeah. like a first draft. Basically, he, co- yeah, he, he usually a of the movie, edited the uh, film right until it was done. Sometimes uh, yeah. afterwards, The Shining got released with an ending that no longer exists. Uh, yeah, and, and yeah. he
1: was pre- pretty pretty meticulous. But at the same time, if you're a projectionist, oh, my God, what a pain in the ass that Cooper guy was. <laughs> what, what aspect ratio was it? What aspect ratio was it? What <laughs> lens do I put in the camera in the projector? It's oh, actually God. not even
0: clear anymore. Yeah. Like seriously, like people don't know the correct I've, aspect ratio for The Shining.
1: I've seen it projected in. I've projected it in one eight five, but I've seen it in one three seven Academy standard. Yeah, uh, and you know what works better in Academy standard.
0: You know, Kubrick Kubrick made sure that when he filmed it, uh-huh. uh, because. The, used to be when like you would put a movie on TV, they would just chop off the edges. However, if you filmed it in Academy standard and just cropped off the tops in order to reach your widescreen, you had that extra information you could put in. Problem is, a lot of filmmakers never intended you to see that stuff, so you would see bits of set dressing or the boom mic more often than not. Uh, and uh, yeah, there was uh, someone online uh, earlier uh, posted like, "Oh yeah." There's an open-mat version of Spider-Man. You get to see the whole movie now. And I'm like, no, this okay. isn't Zack Snyder. He's not. They didn't do that on purpose. That's just the way they made the movie. You're going to see the boom mic constantly. Ma- ma- masterful in- inclusions of the boom. Yeah, that's not how that works. They weren't intended to. But Kubrick and James Cameron did the same thing. He was also aware mm-hmm. that when it need- was going to be shown on TV, he would rather open up the mat than have it trimmed so, yeah, so he made sure that the mat composed, was always clear like
1: composed shots that uh, that would work both work ways in both ways yeah so uh, shining works both ways uh shining because there are so many uh, like show slow tracking shots like down hallways and stuff yeah that's like sort of a square space already and it fits like kind of yeah. solidly into that square aspect ratio uh and so yeah it's like a kind of like wandering through this like tube of the the, the mansion's consciousness uh, I really love that movie. Yeah, uh, I, I love Always White Chat, too. Um, I think it got a little bit of a wrap. M- rap. Uh, try to see the uncensored version. Uh, there, yeah, it, it's, it's the, complete the, BS. The, that uh... the orgy scene has some nudity in it. It's not that vivid. It's really not. Oh, it's, it's like entirely... people are having sex, but like it's nothing that it's you not couldn't like see a... on
0: like Cinemax. Yeah, and and and, you it's, know? and it's you. I've uh... seen way more vivid sexuality on Game of Thrones. Like yeah, you know, so... it's like.
1: Uh, in order to avoid an NC-17 rating from the MPAA, uh, the studio and their infinite wisdom decided finite to wisdom. decided to uh, censor the sex by like CGIing in uh, like shadows, like silhouettes of clothes. No, fingers. like the, the
0: idea is that uh, so you're going to see this guy's butt. Mm. Okay, now you're not going to see that guy's butt because we have CGIed in an onlooker mm. watching them have sex, and that way you will never know that that guy was having sex. Mm. You will just wonder. Uh, why are they writhing around on it's the ground like that? Maybe, unbelievably maybe they stupid. both lost their
1: keys. I remember and their when, the, when this came out. Uh, uh, Roger Ebert gave it four stars, but then he took away a half star. It's like this is a three and a half star movie because he censored it. And yeah. I, know, I know you did that, and that was a bad decision. Yeah, so I'm not going to give you four. Fortunate, stars. Fortunately,
0: the uncensored version is readily available. It's, it's around, Please see yeah. that. Don't bother with the yeah. other one. It's it's, it's the and, same movie otherwise, it's, but it's bullshit.
1: And it, and it's not for prurient reasons. In fact, it's of. Weir- it's not a, Weirdly unarousing movie. It's not supposed to be erotic. Yeah. The whole point is that it's not erotic. The whole
0: point is that it's, it's sex has become something that this guy equates with anxiety and paranoia. There's almost no erotic content in it, even though it is about sex, and that's the point. So, yeah, I'm with you. Uh, so okay. What,
1: what do you, I, that was mine, so what do you got next? What do
0: I got next? Okay, well... Okay, let's go to a film from one of my favorite filmmakers who I don't get to talk about enough Mm, uh, because we don't tend to cover a lot of classic kung fu films on our shows. Uh, But I recently had an opportunity to talk about this film on a really great podcast called Kicking and Screaming, uh, which is a podcast where uh, they bring in a guest and they do a double feature of one kung fu movie Mm. and one horror movie that make a great double feature together for one reason or another. (laughs) All right. Right up my alley. It's totally awesome. There are
1: horror Kung Fu movies.
0: There are, but there's also just Kung Fu movies with interesting thematic material or exciting set pieces or storytelling devices. And you can just pair them up with interesting horror movie and you get it. So, so for example, they paired David Gordon Green's Halloween with Hmm. my choice of Kung Fu movie, which is Lau Leung's Executioners from Shaolin. Okay. Executioners from Shaolin uh, is... It's considered one of the... Kung Fu masterpieces from a director who directed quite a lot of them. Uh, he also directed the films uh the thirty six chamber, Shaolin.
1: That's that's the well known one. I think because that's of probably the Wu Tang clan, but yeah. The
0: yeah. Wu Wu Tang made that a bigger deal than it had been before in America, but it was it's been a classic for a while. Uh the underrated sequel Return to the Thirty Sixth Chamber, which introduces the idea of scaffolding Kung Fu. Kung Fu using scaffolding. Okay. It's awesome, like it's, it's it's kind of a joke, but it is actually awesome. He did a great film called Dirty Ho. Uh, he did a great film called Legendary Weapons of China, which I suspect I will be making room for when we reach the letter L. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did a really he did the Legend of the Drunken Master. Uh, he's also a prolific Kung Fu actor and choreographer, and execution Shaolin Shaolin is one of his more interesting films. Uh, it is the story of uh, Pai Mai. Uh, made very famous in America by Gordon Liu playing him in uh Kill, Kill Bill. Bell, yeah. yeah. Uh and uh yeah. So the idea is, this is the, the the story that Bill tells. I think in one of the uh, is it a deleted scene where he tells the story of Pai Mai and how he like killed an entire Shaolin temple, or is that in the movie? I can't remember. Uh,
1: it, it, it's I think it's in the the longer cut of the
0: yeah uh, of
1: the second volume of Kill Bill.
0: Bill tells a story about how Pai Mai killed everyone in a Shaolin temple. This is the movie about that. He kills everyone in the Shaolin temple. All these Shaolin martial arts masters flee and. One of them vows he will one day return to defeat Pai Mai, this great martial arts killer. Uh, Along the way, he has to uh, make a living, and so he and his fellow martial arts masters uh, become street performers. Mm. There, they run into fellow street performers, and he falls in love with one of them. Uh, He does tiger style, she does crane style. Tiger style is very much arm-centric, crane style is very much about strength
1: in the legs... Uh, and uh, you, learn, you learn all about that from Kung Fu Panda Yeah it's true and all of that's oh, based those, on Yeah those are the yeah. literal animals in that yeah. movie yeah. All of that's inspired
0: by the the, the gist Anyway of yeah. the actual Kung Fu uh, There's this incredible sequence on their Wedding night where he manages To say something like douchey and bro with all of his guy friends about How like yeah you're finally gonna have sex And he's like yeah I am cause I'm the man And then she hears that and it's like You're not having sex tonight So she makes him a deal if you could pull my legs apart we'll have sex good luck Oh God! <laughs> this takes a while this takes <laughs> days for him to figure out a kung fu move necessary to actually and it's flirty it's fun it's great um eventually uh they have a child mm. and uh that child becomes a fusion of their two personalities their two martial arts styles because he ends up learning both together and their genders he's genderqueer He's actually, uh, he, he is, I think he's referred to as a boy, but he dresses as a girl okay, and behaves in a way that is absolutely treats them every single facet of their relationship from their uh, gender to the martial arts style, to their worldviews as a matter of yin and yang existing in the same person. Dad spends his entire life trying to train to destroy Pai Mai. It's not going to go well. And when it comes time for his child to resume, uh, uh, to, to take on that challenge, he ends up having to fuse both of those styles together, creating a new martial arts style, which is now in use. Mm. And, uh, so yeah, it's this kind of like fantastical, uh, uh, retelling of actual martial arts history in some way. It's kind of romantic. It's very lush. Uh, it's weirdly ahead of its time mm. compared to a lot of the depictions of queerness in, Similar uh, Chinese films of the era. Hmm. Uh, and as is typical with a Lau Young film, the action choreography is spectacular. Lau Young is one of the great kung fu filmmakers, period. And you could kind of pick... I mean, you pick some of the ones I mentioned, I think would probably be a good starting point, but you can kind of pick any of them and you're going to see some of the best fight sequences you've ever seen. Yeah. So this movie is just kind of this weird potpourri of everything. It's got bizarre plot points that you cannot possibly comprehend. It's got actual great kung fu philosophy in it. It's got love. It's got murder. It's got an early appearance by Gordon Liu, uh, who, uh, whereas Gordon Liu plays Pai Mai. He's actually killed by Pai Mai's like, soldiers in this one. It's an early world, but he's just getting started. Um, the movie kicks ass, and it's really odd, and it's kind of unlike anything, any other action movie you're likely to see
1: unless you're really looking. Mm. So I love this movie to pieces. I, I guess you haven't seen it. Uh, I, yeah. I'm woefully undereducated when it comes to yeah. Chinese action cinema.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: uh, I, 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 generally speaking, I'm just not drawn to action cinema, but mm-hmm. I appreciate uh, kung fu movies because the fighting is more like dancing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's less about the aggression and the destruction, more about... The, the choreography and the movement mm. and and I always like that when I, even when I see a, a really terrible kung fu movie or a movie that's sort of uh, one that made its way to the United States by cannibalizing three other movies and cutting them together in ways that don't make sense they keep the fight sequences intact so that those are still a satisfying watch regardless. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned I haven't seen that I haven't seen any of the films you mentioned
0: I learned a lot about uh, kung fu cinema I was just sort of interested but uh, they used to have a comic-con a kung fu night hosted by the great Rick Myers uh, who is one of the few proper scholars of kung fu cinema we have in the West uh, and he's written several good books about it. I uh, his film Films of Fury, the Kung Fu movie book, is pretty readily available. Uh, he also did a film called um, What is the other film he did? Uh, he did another. He did another book. It's absolutely indispensable, and it's full of great history of. The actual art form of kung fu, but also uh, the way that uh, the history of the kung fu genre through Hong Kong, uh, also a lot of history of the samurai genre, which you know has some overlap. Uh, lots of great recommendations in it. If you're interested in the genre, uh, his books are a great place to start. They're very easy to read. Like they're fun. I did not mean like, like you know simple, but like they're they're fun to read. Um, so I would recommend them and that's where I got my start and that's where I started uh, really delving into it and yeah they don't, unfortunately they don't come up casually as often as I'd like you know so yeah. uh, but I'm glad to have an opportunity to recommend this one it okay. is an is an interesting film <laughs> uh, let's move on what's your next what's your number five
1: uh, well you know what I have a Chinese film on my list as well oh cool um this is, uh, it's one I've talked about a lot. Uh, it's a film from just a couple years ago, in fact, from 2018. Okay. It was uh, Bows An Elephant Sitting Still. Okay. Uh, which, uh, it's, it's available on Ovid right now. Um, it's one that you and I talked about on the podcast. It's one that B Peterson and I talked about on, uh, on uh, her podcast, um, yeah. All About Ovid, which, where we uh, met on a regular basis, talk about what we had seen on the streaming service, Ovid, that week. Mm. Uh, An Elephant Sitting Still. Uh, Hubo's first feature film, also his last, uh, because he committed suicide shortly after completing it. Uh, and the film is relentlessly bleak. Mm. Uh, it is about a family uh, living in China. They live in this small town. And the movie opens with the description of the elephant of the title, the elephant sitting still. Uh, there's a circus um, in the next city over where uh, an elephant is sitting, is sitting still. And you ah. can go up and you can beat it all you like. And it will sit still. Jesus. No, it's not like an encouragement to beat it. Just, you know, you see this, that this elephant is unmoved. Okay. Uh, and the movie that we get uh, over the course of the next four hours uh, is a litany of suffering of all of of this family. The difficult times they are having. The, difficulty they are, the difficulties they are having with school. The pressures of uh, accusations. A lot of the characters in this movie are accused of things they have or haven't done. Uh, and yet all of the, the guilt and shame is sort of thrown at them. One of them is not doing so well at school and the school might close. Uh, there's an entire sequence with uh, an old man walking a dog and the dog gets killed by another dog. And it turns into this whole thing about, you know, tracking down the owner of the, the dog that is now missing and people getting blamed and beating each other up there's a lot of uh, talk of bullies being bullied at school and how that is sort of a non-starter for all of them. It's not, they can't really end it. They can't really complain about it. They can, and they're, a they're having a, a, they're having a lot of trouble enduring it, but it's just something that's happening. Understanding hmm. the frustrations of life and the pain of simply going through everyday existence is something that we don't see a lot of cinema about yeah uh, because it's,
0: a lot of people go to the cinema to mm-hmm. escape that uh, I, and a lot of people take that as an ethos
1: that movies are supposed to provide. Them. I, I've, I've always taken exception to that notion yeah. that movies are meant to serve as escapism. I always, I've always felt that movies are emotional education. They're enriching. Mm-hmm. that you are taking something from them and if you feel like you're not, all it's, it's actually giving you reassurance. it's not mm-hmm. causing you to it's not letting you escape. Mm-hmm. It's giving you comfort in the things you already believe in. Which can have validity too. Absolutely, absolutely, it can. But what I'm saying is, that's not quite the same thing as escapism. Uh, I'm, I, I feel like that's a really good point. Actually, that's not
0: escapism. It is just reassurance. It's reassurance.
1: It's it's going out into the world and finding the beauty that you already believe in.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, Or uh, maybe it's challenging you. Maybe it's presenting you with something you don't agree with, and, and that's also that's also valid. Maybe it's giving you something new that you never experienced before. I feel like uh, an elephant, an elephant sitting still, is trying to find. It, not unpleasantness. This is not misery porn. Uh, if we were talking about the letter P, I could bring up the Painted Bird. That's misery porn
0: par excellence. Would you actually put that in your top ten? Li- I mean, I realize you get to I, think about it, but if like, you were
1: being aggressive, maybe that day. But you really think
0: it has a shot? Wow. No, okay.
1: no, I wouldn't put. I, it's not one of the best films that starts with the letter P. I, I did put it on my top ten list that year. Yeah, no. Uh, when I, when I, the Painted I, Bird, I, Bird came out, if
0: if that were uh, the case, I would be like, fair enough. But look, it just look up seems...
1: the look up the film The Painted Bird. That is just a uh, young. Yeah. Yeah. child suffering out in the countryside and suffering and suffering and suffering and suffering. That's all that movie is. Uh, it's 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 like a it's like a miserablest novel. Uh, An elephant sitting still is about uh, slowness and sadness and this pervasive emotional gray mm. that uh, one can live in when one is feeling kind of hopeless. And it's tempting to bring a lot of parallels to the Book of Job into this. Mm. Uh, you know that suffering elephant is just sort of suffering the slings and arrows of cosmic fate and yet doesn't move. And I feel like the the movie is mostly shot in close-ups. There's a lot of close-ups and then there's like some mid shots where we get to see entire scenarios. The camera doesn't move a lot. And the final shot is this long wide shot where people are actually heard laughing for the first time. Uh, Whereas a bus is stopped outside of town. It's all dark. And what happens in that scene brings everything to kind of a hopeful conclusion that there is more than just the gray, that there is some integrity to that sitting still. Uh, This is a glorious film. It's a tough watch. Like I said, it's four hours in length, and it is mostly stories of this family unable to break this cycle of, uh, of hurt that they're in. It's not that they're uh, sort of psychologically damaged. It's just that their scenario doesn't allow for anything else. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of insight to be drawn from that. And there's a lot of beauty, uh, this sort of perverse beauty to be found in that. Uh, I really, really love it. I tr- try to recommend this as often as I can. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough sell. Yeah. not everyone's going to be like, Ooh, I got to go see that. But like, if but, it, you're, it's a but challenge. If, but you know, if, if yeah. I'm doing my job right, I can just say this film is awesome. Uh, it, it will overwhelm you and make you feel interesting things. Mm. And that's something I would encourage you to seek out. So I will recommend it wholeheartedly and with, and, and, and open throatedly. Please see an elephant sitting still. Nice.
0: Um, all right, well, uh, i going to get more whiplash here because I'm going in a very different direction. All right. Um, so, uh, I previously, uh, on this list, not that long ago, I recommended The Empire Strikes Back, which yes. is part of the Star Wars franchise, and to a lot of people in my generation, or just before my generation, Generation X, uh, Star Wars was the grand cinematic fantasy of our
1: generation. Yeah. Maybe, you know... It wasn't a bigger blockbuster.
0: No, like, maybe modern audiences, you might feel that way about The Lord of the Rings, or Harry Potter, or whatever, but for my generation, most people would say it was Star Wars or bust. Uh, For me, it was bust. (laughs) Because (laughs) while I have a lot of respect for Star Wars, and I like Star Wars a lot, and I think Empire is arguably even better, uh, for me, growing up, the greatest fantasy adventure in town, like the best one you could possibly see, Uh. was John Borman's Excalibur. Mm. John Borman's Excalibur was, to my way of thinking as a kid, the gold standard in epic fantasy filmmaking. And I still kind of feel that way. I realize that there's a lot of competition now, but there's a lot I really love about this movie. Excalibur, as you can probably tell from the title, is the story of King Arthur. Uh, mm. It takes uh, a lot of its cues from uh, from Mallory and the sort of uh, classical mm. uh, idea we have of King Arthur. It's trying to kind of be... The ultimate version. Whereas something like, say, The Sword and the Stone is telling the story just exclusively about Arthur as a lad. Or something uh, like uh, the Kira Knightley uh, Clive Owen movie is trying to make more of a historical revisionist take. This is trying to give you... We're not fucking with it. We're just trying to give you the ultimate version. Yeah. And in John Borman's head, uh, the ultimate version has everything. Mm. It is gigantic, it is colorful, everything's got a star filter on it, which is a big deal at the time.
1: Um, <laughs> to, to the point where you can't see a damn thing in that movie. <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes it's a little much. I, I look wow. at John oh, Borman. Oh, there's a scene with sparkles. What, John, what's going on behind John there? John Borman's
0: use of a star filter in Excalibur is a little like J.J. Abrams' use of a lens flare
1: lens in the flare, first
2: yeah.
0: Star Trek, Maybe a little much. I,
1: I got to write... It doesn't hurt kill the movie, but maybe overdid his a smidge. I got to write an article about uh, Star Trek Into Darkness and the, yeah. sl- and the lens flare in that movie. Yeah. How J.J. Uh, Abrams, like, he really wanted to go overboard. To to the point where he admits that mm. he deliberately ignored advice from a cin- cinematographer uh, it's like no i want some lens flare that's gonna look terrible no do it do it get these big lights yeah. and shine them right at the camera and get all this lens flare. i, I did an interview with and, jj yeah.
0: abrams in which i got him to say and eventually stephen colbert got him to say the same thing and he got all the credit for it this oh. like months later but i was like i got him to say like yeah i just thought the lens flare was cool mm. and i think everything looks better with a lens flare and then we finished star trek into darkness and people couldn't tell what was going on so we had to get like Industrial Light and Magic to remove lens layers digitally Which they apparently like, yeah, was not uh, a thing they usually uh, had to do it,
1: it, Evidently it was his wife who pointed that out to him yeah. It's like, it's like kinda... you made a movie, it'd be nice if I could see it <laughs> What's going on in this scene, JJ? <laughs> That's John Berman with his sparkle filters I,
0: I, You're not wrong, you're not wrong I find it charming, but oh. you're not wrong It is a unique look It is a distinctive look I think it looks great, but there are a lot of star filters. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. Um, It's got a gigantic cast of... Many of them are people who were already pretty famous at the time. You got the great Nicol Williamson as Merlin. The greatest Merlin we've ever had. Uh, You got Nigel Terry as King Arthur. You've got Helen Mirren uh, in this sucker. Uh, And you got early performances from Liam Neeson and Patrick Stewart and Gabriel Byrne. Uh, And... All of the production design is gigantic. The the armor is actually anachronistic, and it creates these ideas of the king Ar- of Arthur and his knights as not just like knights, but kind of like titans, kind of like gods. These like giant silver and gold, uh, larger than life figures. But what I love about the movie, and what I think makes the movie uh, still hit as opposed to just be an interesting style exercise, is that John Borman is keenly aware that the story of King Arthur is a story of grandeur. That's why we we keep coming back to it. But at the center of it is human frailty. Mm. King Arthur may have, may have been the king. He may have uh, led, ruled over briefly uh, a, a very idealistic uh, version of a British monarchy. Uh, he had larger-than-life adventures and did many incredible things. He was also... A jealous husband who made really stupid mistakes and threw the entire kingdom into chaos because of his fragile ego and everyone else under his rule is equally fragile and makes horrible mistakes that cause horrible things to happen to a lot of people. To the extent that the only way to rescue the land is to literally find the Holy Grail, mm. which is included in this journey as well, yeah. which then takes us into this incredible climactic sequence where King Arthur and his knights, newly rejuvenated, finally found their purpose again, acknowledging their their, their frailties while summoning their strength to try to save the land from people who would destroy it. And they're running through the diseased uh, uh, dying fields Of England And as they run through it All the flowers start sprouting And the the blossoms in the trees Start like spewing petals everywhere And they're playing Wagner And it's fucking huge <laughs> And it's just one of the great cinematic moments I think ever mm. um, There's something that I realize And we'll talk about this in my next film as well That I just I just, I just, love And I love all kinds of cinema I love subtle cinema I love uh, realistic cinema. I love, you know, just sort of uh, uh, fantastical realism. I love all different kinds of cinema. I think my favorite cinema is maximalist cinema. (laughs) Not minimalist, maximalist. We are pushing it as far as we can fucking go. There's a way to do that very badly, and some movies do. But when it's done really well, there's something just unlike it. There's, like, nothing like it. It is just awe-inspiring and Excalibur was one of the first films I saw that actually inspired awe in me. And I love it to pieces. Right. Um, I can, it's some would argue that's not the best Arthurian movie we've ever had. Some might even argue Monty Python, the Holy grail, which there's an argument for that. Actually mm. it's, it's satirical, but it fits. Um, uh, Luke Brisson's, uh, Lancelot du Lac is also really, really great. But for the larger than life, uh, here's the epic fantasy story as you have it envisioned in your head. Excalibur is where it's at, mm-hmm. and this is the mo- reason why Star Wars was just like Star Wars is okay. All
1: right, I like Excalibur. Um, I never finished Excalibur. Wow, I, I saw about a third of it. Oh no! Oh, no. that's a bummer. No. Was it just just too too visually murky, or uh, uh, I I think I was I think I just sort of threw it on to see what it was like. A friend yeah. had lent me a VHS. Yeah. And, and I just, I think I just ran out of time or I lost interest and <laughs> I just turned That's it off. That's a shame. That's a shame. Like, I really did like it was a lot a of amazing stuff. I was just like it. sort of checking it out for a little bit yeah. and I just never thought to finish it. I, I would hope you get to
0: at some point, especially mm. if they ever played on the big screen. Uh, like it's definitely worth seeing on the big screen if you ever get the chance. It right. is just a really gorgeous, epic film
2: mm-hmm.
0: in a way that we just don't have anymore. And yeah, some of the visual stylings are very 80s we're gonna say that about everything yeah. we're gonna say that about Lord of the Rings oh it's so early
1: 2000s and oh, that, that already, looks, and d- yeah, it already and, looks dated
0: yeah it already looks a little dated that's part of its charm really so yeah. anyway uh, what's your what's your next oh, what's your number four I
1: guess golly what do I have that's anything like Excalibur nothing uh, okay. <laughs> none of these movies on my list are like uh, I like Excalibur here's one that uh, I really really loved I call it the best film of the year when it came out mm. uh, and is it one of the best films ever that starts with the letter E well maybe maybe not but I did want to recommend it, mm. and it's James to The End of the Tour. Oh, interesting choice. Um, okay. The End of the Tour is a, is a true story about David Foster Wallace, uh, the late author, uh, who wrote very eloquently uh, I, I guess you could say to the, the Gen X experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very bitter about the way uh, popular culture had kind of warped his mind and the whole generation's mind into an endless need of uh, for distraction. Yeah. Uh, how you are distracted and what you like and the kind of things you consume are the things that define you. He said this long before mm. sort of the explosion of, pop, of the kind of popular entertainment we're watching in the early 2000s. Yeah, the
0: internet made that perspective mm. not just interesting,
1: but yeah. almost an altruism. And uh, and David Foster Wallace was writing about this. He, he wrote a book called Infinite Jest, and that's what the title refers to. You're just constantly being entertained. You're in, in a state of infinite jest. Uh, the end of the tour is about uh, David Foster Wallace, who's played by Jason Siegel, And the reporter, uh, his, the character's name is uh, David Lipsky, uh, played by Jesse Eisenberg, are on the last leg of his book tour. And it's about how... Uh, the David Lipsky character really admires David Foster Wallace, but also has that fragile ego thing where he has to prove him wrong. Mm. He has to gain respect from David Foster Wallace by bickering. By him. challenging yeah, ch- him. And if he well, can there's, a, there's a, best him in conversation, then he'll he'll win something.
0: There's a great bit at the beginning where uh, Jesse Eisenberg's character, mm. he uh, he's he's written a novel, he's written a book or short story or something like that, he's yeah. published a book, and he... Didn't go very he had some good reviews, but it didn't go very well. But everyone's talking about this infinite jest thing. And he's just like, Oh, everyone's talking about it. Oh yeah, I'm sure I'm gonna read it and it's gonna be the best book ever. And then it cuts to him reading it in bed and just putting down going shit <laughs> so he's he's he clearly thinks very highly of david foster wallace but he sees them as competitors in some way he sees yeah. them as occupying the same space and in order to achieve david foster wallace's greatness he has to be his equal in some way mm. and so he's never just lets it go he has to challenge every single thing that gets said he has to make everything an interesting conversation and you can see sometimes david foster wallace being like really excited by this you can also see him getting a little weary of it sometimes like hmm. can we just it's not? <laughs> yeah. Like he, does David everything Fo- have to be a thing?
1: Yeah. David Foster Wallace likes having these conversations, but he also realizes we can just be people for a second. Yeah. And, uh, on the tour, of course, David Foster Wallace realizes he doesn't have a TV, not because he's like, hipster tv but he realizes it's kind of addictive and if, yeah. once he starts watching tv he can't stop
2: yeah. so there's
1: uh, this sort of running thing that whenever he's picked up the tv is on in the background it's like uh, he's just back in there watching yeah. this tv all the time
0: yeah he's like oh stay in a hotel room on a press tour and he's like i'm sorry just we're we're watching night rider right now we have to finish this episode like, yeah, yeah he completely falls into it mm. he, he, he's admittedly uh, that
1: yeah, uh, yeah he's not above it david foster wallace struggled with depression and that's yeah. evident in this movie and david foster wallace ended up taking his own life uh and this is a very much about how this author kind of saw that and and didn't really acknowledge it and wasn't able to sort of confront it in any kind of meaningful way. Yeah. About how David Foster Wallace was withdrawing in healthy ways, but also in not healthy ways and how um, he was unable to sort of engage with David Foster Wallace because he was a little bit too obsessed with his own ego and his own sense of trying to, trying to get the better of this guy. Yeah. And that put it, da- without even realizing it, put David Foster Wallace on even higher a pedestal than he was already on. Yeah. He's, he was one of those authors who was constantly being told he's the voice of a generation and yeah. stopped wanting to hear it after a while.
0: Well, and it's, fr- it's one thing that's a little frustrating about the movie, and I like this movie a lot. I really yeah. do. I, I agree with you. It's a very, very good film. Didn't make my list, but it's very, very mm. good. Um,. There are some legit critiques of David Foster Wallace's work, especially his non-fiction work, which mm. he would sometimes under-research and do a real disservice to the material because he yeah, was just kind yeah. of letting his voice uh, carry. He did a piece uh, about just the good.
1: pornographic industry that a lot of people in the industry really didn't appreciate yeah, good, and really he really didn't do a good job He was job a very and, a very extemporaneous writer. He wasn't yeah. so much a journalist, I think. Yeah. Uh, and I think he thought that being extemporaneous was enough when it came to journalism. Well,
0: And, and he's, he's allowed to do that, but I think uh, one of the things that the film... shies away from is a kind of real legit critique of his work which is not what the film is about but it's Hmm. a little hero worshipy and i think that's maybe the worst thing i could lob at it is Mm -hmm. that it's a little one-sided about david foster wallace's greatness but the movie has a perspective, and it's it's such a great two hander.
1: Yeah, like just Eisenberg bo- both and Siegel of those,
0: are great in this movie.
1: It, it's one of those films that I think it came out like too early in the year to get awards attention. It was like it was like mid was like March or something. something. Oh, I'll yeah. look it up.
0: I'll look it up because I came remember out seeing kind of it really, pretty
1: early in the year because. Yeah. Um, I saw it with uh, with um, my wife, and she, we walked out. She's like, "Okay, it's early in the it year." Came out in
0: July, which oh, is still a little early. Still early. W-
1: yeah. We saw it at an early screening here in yeah. LA at the CineFamily, Family, and she said, "How does it? How does it feel to know that you've seen the best film of the year like this early in the year?" Yeah, it's like, yeah, that kind of was really good, wasn't it? And I, yeah. I, I ended up calling it the best film of that year.
0: Yeah, I like Sold a lot. I think uh, he's a really, really good filmmaker. He hasn't. Not everything he does is great, but. Um, mm. Yeah, that's the sort of like, thing where just... Because he did, like, the two... Like, the two one two punch of The Spectacular now at the end of the tour, uh, I will always be interested in anything okay. he does.
1: Don't watch his film The Circle because it is trash. Yeah, that's is where he tried to go Hollywood. So he tried to go Hollywood. It's uh, this critique of yeah. tech bro culture and, yeah. you know, uh, Tom Hanks plays this villainous version of Steve Jobs, which is a character type uh, by the time he got to it.
2: Mm. And
1: it doesn't seem to be making a lot of important points. Yeah. And it started, uh, Emma Watson was in it. Um, uh, boyhood was in it. And- um, <laughs> <laughs> Eller Coltrane that's, that's his name Yeah Tom uh, Hanks uh, is in that Eller oh, Coltrane
0: yeah, Karen Gillan is in that Patton Oswalt Bill yeah. Paxton Like the good cast
1: and, and it was written by James Paul and Saltz And Dave Eggers Another like really important Gen X voice Yes, yeah, who was actually uh, Like
0: arguably like Inspired by David uh, Foster Wallace In some of his work So yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of weird um, uh, he, and, yeah. and,
1: and they got this A cast together They had an interesting Topic they wanted to cover And they just wrote Like the crappiest movie Yeah This weird thriller With conspiracy theories in it and stuff uh, it's just so bad
0: look you can't knock it out of the park every time i suppose not uh, and yeah. i don't
1: think james Ponsoldt has made it directed a movie since then <sighs> oh that would be disappointing is that oh, true he, uh he has a, a movie coming up this year i just looked him up okay uh, it's called summering um all right well i hope it's good yeah, he's also so done so some tv since then him. so at least right. he's been working
0: um well, anyway, yeah, uh, but that, good pick. Uh, didn't make my list, but that's a very, very good film. Um, we're we're in the the final three now, uh-huh. and uh, we're gonna start hitting some ringers. We're yeah. gonna start hitting
1: some films which. You know, you and I
0: both like to put interesting films on our list and, you know, we want to make sure people are, you know, exposed to as many different types of movies as they can that are actually worth being exposed to. And But there comes a time where sometimes you have to admit that some of the films in the so-called great movies mm. canon are legitimately that good. <laughs> you don't have to take it for granted and you should always challenge this. Just because you saw a movie that was on the great movies list of the AFI Mm. twenty years ago and you thought it was really good, doesn't mean you'll watch it again today and still feel that way. Sometimes movies don't retain their power over time, but some do.
1: Yeah.
0: One of them is Evil Dead Two. Now,
2: (laughs) Evil Dead (laughs) Two.
0: Evil Dead. I struggled Mm. with which Evil Dead to put on this list because I actually think all three of the Evil Dead movies, not Counting Army of Darkness, which is technically Evil Dead Three, but it's not called. Doesn't start with an eight.
2: You're it doesn't fine. start with an A
0: It doesn't qualify for this list right. It's great though And I love it But when it comes to The Evil Dead movies They're all actually Really great mm. uh, The original The Evil Dead In many respects Is kind of my favorite It's this absolute Run and gun We had no money We got a cabin in the woods And we just and go yeah. And go And there's demons Go It's <laughs> actually a really Excellently scary movie With some like Surprising meta commentary About the genre Uh the reason I didn't go with it, there's only one reason is there is one sequence with a tree that is so far beyond where it needed to go yeah, that it's simply that's... unpleasant. Like it's it's scary, but it's like it, it... it's like trying too hard to be extreme hmm. for the sake of like people noticing it's, it's, your film. It's the,
1: the young provocateur yeah. thing. You're gonna do something that's Deliberately gross and shocking yeah. Because you want to be deliberately gross and, and shocking it just, it,
0: it, I'm not going to pretend it's not scary It's legitimately terrifying But it's also, it just kind of sits there And kind of just kind of Kind of ruins a big chunk of the movie After a while You just you kind of realize this, this isn't fun anymore um, And and not even like in a good way Like in a, like, a scary fun way But like it's a way it's like, you know what I just You kind of just ruined it for a while And you're going to mm. take a while to get me back So that's that The remake is also really good yeah, the, the Fede Alvarez film is its own thing, and what I love about that movie is that he really embraces Sam Raimi's hyperkinetic maximalist style in a way that reminds us that, weirdly enough, Sam Raimi is considered one of the great filmmakers of that genre of film generation. Not enough people were influenced by his style. I'm just going to say that right now I Not, don't, not I,
1: enough people were influenced I, by his style I
0: honestly think when you look at filmmaking today uh, You don't see a lot of people trying to do what Sam Raimi did
1: Cough cough Edgar Wright cough cough Edgar um, Wright is
0: one exception and that uh, will give you that But <laughs> I don't see a lot of people Trying to really dazzle with the camera In the way that Sam Raimi does I'm just trying to make pretty looking movies Yeah Sam Raimi in Evil Dead 2 is basically giving the ultimate horror style exercise where the plot is nothing. (laughs) The plot is almost non existent.
1: The main character is not being attacked by demons. He's being attacked by the camera. He's being attacked by Sam Raimi.
0: Pretty much, yes. Uh, Bruce Campbell goes into a cabin in the woods with his girlfriend. She is immediately possessed by a demon and tries to kill him. He has to, like, absolutely, like, chopper into pieces in order to kill the demon and then he starts losing his mind and then his hand becomes infected by evil and he has to fight his own hand to the oh. death and then he chops off his hand and then his hand starts crawling around and trying to kill him some, and it, some
1: of the physical comedy that uh, bruce hmm. campbell does in that movie yeah. is it's it's like on par with Harold Lloyd. yeah like it is classic movie physical comedy
0: bruce campbell I think, is just one of those actors who was born in the wrong time. If he had been born in 1900, oh. he would have been a gigantic silent film star. Yeah, He really. would have done all of the dashing, daring stuff, but he could have done the slapstick comedy too. And then when it, when it all turned to sound, guess what? He sounds great. He's still a good actor. He could have done anything. Oh. He would have been huge. But for whatever reason... <laughs> It didn't work out and he ended up doing mostly cult films but he's amazing in this movie. He has to carry half of this movie just by himself. It's just him and the camera which wants to kill him and anytime the camera (laughs) points at anything that you would normally not need to point to that thing comes alive and tries to kill him. Hmm. It's just him versus the movie. And then eventually a few other people end up at the cabin, which is basically just, well, we ran out of people to murder. And they're going to murder the shit out of them. And there will be (laughs) geysers of blood and people eating each other's faces. And then eventually they have to, like, put a cybernetic chainsaw on Bruce Campbell's stump. And then we have that... It's just fucking insane. Absolutely everything about this movie is in love with the act of making the movie. It is an absolutely Mm. energized motion picture where every single thing that we do, every camera move, every sound effect, every bit of acting, every story setup, every piece of violence, is presented in such a way for maximum cinematic impact, which is hilarious because there's hardly any story to tell. Guy goes into cabin, demon's in
1: cabin, go that's yeah. it that's the whole thing mm. that that it, it exists to be itself which i know is a kind of a meaningless phrase but yeah, yeah. It, it exists as a piece of cinema rather than as a like a statement about it's, something it's, a meaningful not, cinematic treatise exactly, on anything it, yeah. the, the treatise is its style and the, yeah. that's that's always admirable when a filmmaker can pull that off when yep. they have a style that is strong enough that they can make the film about it yeah um what I appreciate about Evil Dead 2, and it's on my runner's up, I didn't put it on my top 10 That's list, fair. but I, I, you know, came very close. I felt like I was a little bit too much of a gimme. You knew I was going to put it on here. Though. I kind of figured yeah, you would I've too, seen so we could talk about it. I've literally seen this movie a hundred
0: times. I can guarantee you <laughs> I've seen this movie hundred times.
1: Um, the mistake people make about Evil Dead 2 is that it's a horror movie. It's mm. not. It's a comedy film that yeah. uses the language of horror to tell a slapstick story. Yeah, it's a horror it's, comedy. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a Laurel it's a- and Hardy short is what it is, yeah. stretched into this like bonkers 1980s horror flick. Yeah. It's got a lot of great...
0: It, it's not going to make you lose sleep at night, probably, unless you're like really susceptible to violence and you don't mm. watch a lot of horror movies. But it's a great jump scare movie. And one of the reasons why is because Sam Raimi is a master of timing uh-huh. He understands that because when you watch a horror movie and like you see someone investigate a strange noise and they walk around and you can you can kind of count it like three, two, yeah. one. Is there someone behind this? Yeah. No. Okay, three, two, one. What about this? Three, two, one.
2: Ah!
0: You can in a bad horror movie you can just count it off. It's just it's yeah. mathematical on the pacing. The jump scares in Evil Dead 2, you can count them off. They're always at random intervals. He's always <laughs> keeping you off guard so that even if you've seen the movie many times, you still might get surprised by where the, exactly where the shot comes in. And it's full of that. It's a great spill your popcorn movie. Um, this is the kind of movie that I would absolutely show to any film school. Yeah. Because this is a movie which is... I mean, you can see the seams... You know, like literally, in some of the costumes, like it's not a, a, a completely uh, uh, spotless production. It's very low budget. It had a bigger budget than the original, but it's still very low budget. There is an absolute joy with cinematic storytelling, like how to tell a story through cinema, that I think anyone can learn from, and it doesn't matter how big a budget you have if you have enough zeal. Uh-huh. And if you have enough understanding of how cinematic storytelling works that you can play and have fun, your film, no matter how, what it is about, can make an impact. And that's something that I don't think enough modern movies embrace. Yeah, yeah. We have to We have to absolutely use the utmost, biggest, we got to take the biggest swings we possibly can in order to make an impact. There's just... Not enough of that. I think. Uh,
1: I, I feel like um, the trend now is to simply uh, increase the budget. It's yeah. to I, I. I need to find a, a clever way to imagine this. You don't need to be clever. We'll just spend some more money on yeah. uh, the special effect. You need to realize that in CGI. Yeah. And now we can just sort of do that, and we have the the uh, factory in place to mm-hmm. sort of churn that out as whatever whatever you want. And that, that doesn't feel like. Unfettered creativity that feels like kind of the opposite. Yeah, where you're not challenged to do something in a creative way, you're just sort of doing what you said. Yeah, and and that doesn't feel very exciting. Like like you can see that when Sam Raimi does like
0: Spider-Man Two, and you can tell Mm. he just loves Doctor Octopus. Yeah, he loves the the monster stuff. The monster
1: stuff is always
0: great in those movies. The the
1: surgical theater scene in Spider-Man Two feels like something out of Evil Dead. Oh,
0: totally. It's using the exact same Mm. cinematic techniques. The snap zooms Mm. onto key. Key tools that are about to be used yeah. to just cut someone's yeah, arms uh, off. The,
1: the, the monster thing with, there's like a, a rear screen projection of like speeding motion behind this yeah. tentacle. It's sort of, to make it look yeah. like it's speeding through in this cartoon kind of way.
0: But even just Dr. Octopus himself, those arms were mostly practical. Like yeah, that was yeah. the idea is he wanted to put this character. There's really nothing like Dr. Octopus. Mm-hmm. In any other movie before then, and he just wanted to push. Mm. Whereas I saw, a, a, I don't, I don't really get that from a lot of the mm. new Spider man was Like, oh my god, we can finally do this thing. This could be the coolest thing ever. What wonders can we present to you?
1: Mm. Mm. Well, now it's just a now it's just a casting. Gimmick. It's just it's CGI. Um, like, yeah. It doesn't really. You know, I don't really get a sense of wonder out of it yeah. anymore. You know, the um, there's a scene in Spider-Man Two, which I think yeah. exemplifies this because I saw the outtakes. No, oh. where uh, <laughs> yeah. Doctor Octopus is uh, the first of all the, the the scene where they introduce hey i've got a chip on this on my back yeah, that yeah. if it's destroyed i'll go crazy yeah so, so keep an the, eye on the that the tentacles
0: have artificial intelligence and they'll control my mind instead of the other way around and for some reason i made them
1: evil yeah, <laughs> like so, yeah, so look at this chip guess what's going to be destroyed in this scene yeah uh, i, I made
0: sure it's completely unprotected and mm-hmm. highly visible and it's made of cheap dinky plastic
1: Like it's almost <laughs> charming how, how corny that is <laughs> Uh, and so he gets really confident and evil once the arms take over, and those like you are his arms; he can yeah. control them with his mind. Yeah. And uh, there's a scene where he's threatening Peter and drinking a cup of tea. Yeah. And it's a
0: dainty, it's a dainty little
1: tea cup. But he, uh, to give it a visual flair, they put it in the tentacle. The tentacle is holding the tea yeah. up to his lips. Now, <laughs> Sam Raimi wanted that to be practical. He's got this big mechanical yeah. arm, and some stagehand had to reach that in and tilt the teacup to. Alfred Morlina's mouth Yeah so that he but could Actually had, drink from it yeah. But it had to look like He was controlling it So he couldn't like Move his head toward the cup They did, had to do like 20 takes yeah, of this yeah. teacup
0: I remember I, I They uh, wouldn't
1: do that These days I, uh, I, Something charming of him Just drinking a cup of tea
0: I got to interview Kurt Russell Which that was a dream By the way One of my oh, all time oh, nice. All time icons But I got to interview him For the Hateful Eight actually
1: all right.
0: uh, I'm not gonna I know you can't really talk, can't talk about, about it But, but I'll talk to you About a little behind the scenes Thing you told me about It reminded me of what You just said There's a scene in The Hateful Eight where Kurt Russell, like, reaches up and he punches Jennifer Jason Leigh, who's a mm. criminal in his in his, in his his care. Um, and I asked him about that scene, because, like, you gotta, like, get really close to Jennifer Jason Leigh to sell that. But um. you also don't want to hurt Jennifer Jason Leigh. And I asked, how do you build enough trust to be able to do that without having to use editing? Yeah. And he, I, to his credit, he took that really seriously. He was like, that's a great question, and the whole thing is... The person you're acting with needs to know that I will never hit them. I yeah. would rather ruin the take than hit them. We only have to make it look good once. Yeah. One time is all it takes. You can mess it up 50 times. It just has to look good once. Hmm. And it's just about trust. And it's just about eventually that guy's going to get that teacup exactly where it needs to go. It can take 20 takes, but we only need one. And no one at home will ever know how many times we failed. Hmm. And it's going to look fucking amazing. The one time we do it right, that's all it takes is patience. There's a saying in Hollywood, you can have it done uh, fast, good, cheap. or cheap.
1: Uh, two, two of those three. You, can have, yeah. you can't have all three. You can yeah. have two of the three. You
0: can have fast Maximum. and good, good and cheap, or or uh, or, or fast and cheap. Yeah. <laughs> you can never have all three. You have to pick which one you, you're willing to sacrifice. You can have it be fast and cheap, but it's not going to be yeah. good. You to yeah. have it
1: good and fast, but it's not going to be cheap. Yeah, yeah exactly. Boom. Boom.
0: Uh, anyway, Evil Dead 2, great movie. What's uh, your next
1: pick? Well, you, you chose sort of a, a film on heavy rotation in the midnight circuit. Uh, that's one of your favorites. So I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to choose Eraserhead. Uh, that's one of my favorite movies. Interesting. That was my well, number one. Is it? Excellent. I was, I'm surprised it wasn't yours. Um, my, my Mine's a little bit more of a gimme. And I'll, okay. I'll, I'll, we'll get to that in a second. All right. Um, yeah, I love Eraserhead. I love it, I love it, I love it. It is a nightmare. It makes me afraid. It makes me feel dark, disturbing things that I didn't know were in my subconscious. It is a pure look into David Lynch's brain. Uh, one of the strengths of cinema is its ability to give pure visual vision of what is inside a filmmaker's head. I would say, some might say, better than any other medium. Even better than just automatic writing.
2: Mm. Uh
1: David Lynch would take exception to me calling it a work of surrealism. He felt that surrealism was a little bit more of a, a political art form and he was just trying to uh, communicate emotions. Mm. Andy Razorhead is about fear.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, it takes place in uh, sort of this nightmare version of Philadelphia. Uh, David Lynch spent a little bit of time in Philadelphia while he was in art school and he hated it. <laughs> And so, uh the main character of Eraserhead, this character named Henry Spencer, played by Jack Nance with his wild hairdo, uh lives in a, an urban hellscape where uh, he essentially lives in what looks like a hall uh like a hallway yeah at this like really awful apartment it lo- building it looks
0: he looks like he lives in like a dilapidated industrial park
1: yeah, yeah like it doesn't look like
0: a ho it doesn't look like uh an apartment or a home it looks like a shitty fucking building where someone just said, oh, by the way, these are apartments Mm. now. And everyone's like, could you clean them up?
2: (laughs) What, uh, what does Henry
1: Spencer do for a living? He's on vacation. Uh, he goes to have dinner with his, girlfriend perhaps mm-hmm. a character named mary he's and, surprised uh, to hear from her like he thought they'd broken up yeah maybe they didn't he's now earlier, confused he, he holds up a torn picture of her early so earlier in the movie so yeah. something's going on between them
0: yeah it did not end uh, great but maybe it uh, didn't
1: end who knows <laughs> oh golly that wonderful dinner scene oh where the, the family is all nightmarish yeah, and he uh, meets her
0: parents and her parents are super weird and there's this sort of a attempt at domesticity, at suburban domesticity, but then everything goes horribly wrong because yeah. for dinner we're having chickens that Dad invented.
1: Uh, he didn't invent them, but they're they're little. They're new. I thought he invented them. Remember I right? It was like uh, they're they're just invented.
0: Okay, like, I thought he invented them. Okay. It's like
1: little chickens. Uh, they're they're little, but they're new, and, and they th- crawl around the plate still. Least, uh, and so you just they cut they them up like re- regular chickens. Yeah, he starts group. starts to cut them up, and they just bleed on the plate. Comes to life. The mom freaks out. There's a really horrifying line where uh, she yells at Henry Spencer saying, there's a baby. You and Mary had a baby. And she says, they're not even sure it is a baby. That's one of the most terrifying lines in the movie. That's not a great start. Uh. She she moves in with him and they begin to raise the child. The child uh, David Lynch has always been very coy about the special effects used to achieve the the baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, the eraser head baby is not a human. It looks like a ca- like a hairless glistening calf of some kind yeah, whose body is swaddled in cloth
0: and rectangular practically. Yeah, like, it's like it's, it's like
1: teardrop shaped body and this like, weird no, sort no, of calf dog, head like and, triangular sorry you know, triangular shaped yeah, body it's and this cow looking head. Yeah, um, there's been some rumors that it was uh, a lamb fetus. That he animated right. with special effects. Uh, but he's never said he's never David Lividon. Yeah, because gotten he doesn't want the technicals to be part well, of it. Well he doesn't want the he baby to be the image. Well
0: that's the thing. He's even said like he doesn't really like doing like uh, commentary tracks. He doesn't want you to think about how the how it got made. Mm-hmm. He wants you to appreciate what it is. Which is fun. I like also I like knowing both, but I appreciate wanting to keep some mystique. Why not? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so they they they're raising this child together. Eventually, uh his girlfriend Uh, says fuck it I'm out (laughs) this is too much for me the baby
1: is crying too much she can't take care of it and she says I
0: think she says she's gonna go visit her parents and then she just never comes back Mm -hmm. and now he's taking care of this child he is responsible for its well-being he feels no connection to it he's just alone and it gets sick and it gets sick and and he doesn't know what to do and he's alone and he's miserable and the only place he feels even remotely safe is in a dream maybe it's a dream about a woman living in his radiator that's how little he's got uh, and it, it ends in a, a shocking, terrible, wonderful way. Um, there's a line and, and you're going to know this better than I do, Cause I, I, for some reason i I was trying to figure out like exactly how it goes. I think it was like Olivier who said this, like Hamlet is like a role that every actor has to step into, like yeah, challenge a, every actor. has called to it the,
1: the hoop through which every actor must eventually jump.
0: Yeah. Eventually everyone's got to try Hamlet, right? Even if it's just a monologue, uh, I look at Eraserhead as one of those films that I think every cinephile needs to experience at some point.
1: It's, it is a, a bit of a rite of passage. It's considered
0: a rite of passage. It was for me. Like, when I was a kid, Eraserhead was one of those movies where everyone's just like, yeah, when you're ready, you're going to see Eraserhead, and you're going to see what cinema can do. Because the shit that you're watching as a kid, it's not bad, hmm. but it's taking it easy on you.
1: Yeah. Uh... And
0: Eraserhead is going to blow your fucking mind, mm. and sure enough, it did.
1: Mm. It held up to that uh, hype, which is a lot of hype for a kid. I, I didn't have a lot of hype about Eraserhead when I first saw it. I saw it um, when I was in high school. And mm. uh, I was always drawn at my local video store, uh, when that was a thing, uh, to the what was called the cult section. It's yeah. just all the really bizarre, so that's where you'd find uh, Mondo Kane and all mm-hmm. the John Waters films and all the David Lynch movies. Yeah, uh, And Eraserhead was there, and I was always drawn to that box of Henry Spencer on the front with his hair. I had no context, and uh, mm. I saw it, and... So you just rented it, it blind? It just rented it blind. It was wow. like, I was interested in, this That's, is weird, that I That must know have been a weird day. Well, what it was eye-opening, because what happened with Eraserhead was, I suddenly realized that this is what films could be. Yeah. I was used to seeing, you know, comedy, I was really into comedy films mostly as a yeah. kid. I'd seen a lot of, you know, action pictures and horror movies, but uh, those were all, like, Genre films. Yeah, mainstream they tell, they, stuff. Mainstream stuff made by studios. Yeah. They have a certain budget and they tell a certain kind of they're story. All, they're not trying to challenge you too much. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I was still only a teenager, so I wasn't really delving into a lot of the headier adult material because I wasn't mm. old enough yet. Uh, I didn't realize movies could do that. Yeah. That they could be about fear and have these surreal images and mm. be you know, feel like dreams within dreams.
0: That they could eschew narrative convention. That they yeah, could that, just that, present that, you with... Imagery that you had that didn't come from you,
1: yeah, it yeah. came
0: from someone else's subconscious. Like you're witnessing mm. something that only exists because someone's very specific. Yeah, Imagine so. it's, it's not imagining two people in a room dogging, it's oh. not imagining someone flying, it's
1: imagining this.
2: <laughs>
1: How did you come up with this? Yeah, well, what this is unlike mm. anything I've ever seen before or yeah. since, yeah. The Eraserhead is not the kind of movie that could influence somebody there aren't not directly like, yeah, like, there are movies like Eraserhead in the same kind of way
0: there, there's no Eraserhead knockoff that I'm aware like, of right <laughs> maybe Dude. some student films mm. probably somewhere out there but like oh, I'd love in to terms see, of features like, they just
1: don't make them like, like this the fountain pen hands even or David Lynch
0: doesn't make them like this anymore no like, like, yeah. like,
1: and we talked about uh, Inland Empire recently on our yeah. latest episode of Critically Acclaimed and it's not uh, it's, made the same way it's a very no, different beast no no, yeah. no uh, this, this is a film David Lynch made over several years the story the story of its making is, is pretty notorious, where yeah. he was given a grant by the American Film Institute, yeah. and uh, it took him five years to finish the movie, and he claims they kind of forgot about him. Yeah, they just bet. sort of let him finish it, because he just sort of, like, petered out, and they never checked in
0: on him. I think there was someone uh, who was telling a story, uh, and he was like, because he had this had a script, yeah. but... Almost nothing happens in the movie There's almost no it's like dialogue It's like a
1: 10 page script it, And it's like this, No this is a ma- 10, okay, 10 minute great. movie
0: uh, They're like Okay great So it's a 10 minute movie And it's like Well when it's filmed It's going to be a little longer than that Okay Like a 20-30 minute movie Yeah it's
1: a feature Like really? <laughs> how are you going to do that? There's long spans Where right? yeah. you know The this- the sound is really important in Eraserhead, all of those boring, these weird grinding industrial noises are this is one of the first throughout. films
0: where I fully appreciated a sound escape. Not just like, mm. oh, the music sounds good or mm. the explosions are good, but I actually appreciate that the sound in your ears at any given second
1: is not just telling the story, but conveying something profound. Yeah. Even if you don't know what it is. Um, I have I have the soundtrack CD for mm. Eraserhead. It's two tracks each one's like about 20 minutes long and it's just that sound. It's just a lot of these grinding noises and special effects with occasionally uh, you'll hear like passages from the movie, bits of dialogue. And then of course there's the, uh, there's the in heaven, everything is fine song from the lady and the radiator.
0: Uh, there's, there's sometimes thought about doing this, but I don't know if anyone actually be interested. Like uh, a list of like the 50 or 100 movies that I just think that everyone who loves film should get to at some point, Mm -hmm. you know, the films you see before you die, that kind of thing. But, um, the top three on this list would be on that. So my, my, my top three anyway. it would be yeah. Eraserhead, Evil Dead 2, and what my number two is. And I'm wondering if it's your number one. Hmm. wondering. Can I just get to
1: it? Yeah, just go for it. Is it The Exorcist? It's The Exorcist. Okay, that's, that's fine. One. Okay, <laughs> that's fine. That's it's, totally fine because well, it's a great fucking movie you know, is what it is. William Friedkin's The Exorcist is, uh, I, think, I feel like calling it the best horror movie ever made or one of the best horror movies ever made yeah. is almost treating it unfairly. Because yeah. uh, that puts in a certain expectation. And I've met a lot of my, uh, talked to a lot of my peers who have, were gro- growing up with the idea that The Exorcist is the scariest movie ever made. It's yeah. really, really uh, terrifying. And we're the types to rent a lot of horror movies. And we like a lot of mayhem in our movies. We yeah. were growing up with like slasher movies. Well, yeah, when you're Halloween. a kid,
0: you want horror to entertain you. You yeah. want it to be like, yeah,
1: let's do it. Let's get a chainsaw. i yeah. so, nuts. So, a lot of my friends, when they were in their late teens, early 20s, are bellying up to The Exorcist for the very first time. Yeah. And discovering it that it's. this. There's no mayhem in this. This is not. Well, isn't very that. little. Only and in a couple a of lo- scenes. A lot of people would say this isn't that scary. It's not until yeah. they get to the end where it gets kind of scary. It's, well, that's when all the action happens.
0: Yeah, that's when the violence occurs. Really. The Exorcist yeah. is
1: a movie for adults, and it that's is. the difference. Uh, this is a movie about. Uh, a young girl who is possessed or is behaving very strangely, as if she might yeah. be possessed.
0: Maybe she, uh, maybe she's mentally
1: ill. Yeah, maybe um,
0: she's under some sort of delusion. Maybe they, uh, they check to make sure she doesn't have
1: a brain tumor. Yeah, I've I've read uh, I read the book, uh, the William Peter Blatty novel, and it's really it, the movie col- follows it pretty damn close. really closely. And uh, there's very little
0: missing and almost what's, nothing added.
1: What's in the book that they don't spend uh, as much time on in the movie is the doubt. That Regan McNeil, uh, played by Linda Blair in the movie, uh, might not be possessed. And in fact, there's a lot of talk about how even if something extraordinary happens, like if something floats through the air or... Mm -hmm. or the the character like words manifest on her abdomen.
2: Yeah,
1: uh, there are medical explanations for that. Or yeah. you know, psychic phenomena is on the books. Yeah. So opening a drawer with your mind isn't proof that she's possessed.
0: Yeah, they, she, she could, could just, just be, be, psychic. be psychokinetic. Yeah, even the Catholic Church is willing to admit that that's possible.
2: Yeah, so yeah,
1: so, so there there are a lot of these really stringent uh, yeah. things to like prove that this is uh, this girl yeah. is possessed. And I think it's really interesting that the person investigating this, Father Karras, Uh-huh. Uh, is his faith is flagging? He's lost his mm. faith. He doesn't really believe in God anymore.
0: Yeah, he's this close to leaving the church.
1: Yeah, and uh, yeah. and he's the one who's asked to prove the existence of the devil. So he's actually kind of uniquely qualified to call bullshit on any of this.
0: Yeah, and so the fact mm. that he's get, this is the thing about the Exodus is one of, one of the many things about it that's brilliant. Mm. On one hand, all the doubt mm. serves a plot function because this is coming out of the 1970s. Secularism is on the rise. In Western Western civilization. The idea that religion is an option. The idea that you can be... You can give up on religion. That if you were not born religious or raised religious, or even if you were, you can say to yourself, I believe in science. I believe in what can be experienced.
1: And I don't think it's not about belief for me, it's about proof and experience.
0: Basically, whether you actually dislike religion or just simply believe that it's not real, this is something that is now acceptable, and intelligent people are being respected for saying so, and this was not the norm for a really long time. How do we tell a story about an exorcist in a secular in a secular world? Mm. Well, we have to remove every single other possibility. And we will do so meticulously. We will go through every single other thing it could possibly be until finally there's nothing left. The only thing it can be is demonic possession. So that is a practical, logistical concern in the screenplay. Mm. But as a result... What you are doing is challenging secularism in its face. <laughs> you are saying to the people who believe that there is nothing out there, mm. what if you're wrong? Yeah,
1: yeah. And
0: wouldn't that be scary? It'd
1: be pretty terrifying. To if, find if, out that
0: not only is God real, but the devil is real. Wouldn't that scare you, person who's all high and mighty about being, you know, better than religion? Wouldn't that be the scariest possible thing? And once you are willing to engage in that thought experiment Mm. once you the movie wears you down until you just have to accept that the supernatural is real in an otherwise incredibly realistically presented
1: world Mm. it's fucking terrifying it's, it's terrifying it's something that adults are concerned with yeah and it's told from the perspective of people who have practical concerns mm-hmm. uh something i really admire about the exorcist is how grounded it is uh there's a lot of s- silence in this movie mm-hmm. it's not about creeping dread it's about finding something unexpected in the real world yeah uh and the, little details and the main character yeah. is a uh, uh, regan's mother um mm-hmm. it was played by Ellen uh, burston yeah She's an actress. Mm -hmm. She she tools around with artists. She has parties and she drinks cocktails. She Mm -hmm. has no concern with... Religion. She has kind of her, her marriage is flagging. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, because like there, got a her, divorce, and her had, husband
0: yeah. is an absentee. He never shows or, 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 up. No matter her, what happens to Regan, they're
1: separated. And the, uh, yeah. even the relationship with this guy is. is well, no matter what gone. happens
0: to Regan, he never shows up. Yeah, yeah. He, she's going through all these horrible tests. They don't know she's dying. They don't know mm-hmm. what the hell is going on. Dad never shows up. So
1: that right, part so, of her life does suck. But otherwise, she's a very independent, pra- practical self- adult, yeah. uh, vocationally driven life. Yeah, interrupted by something you don't believe in mm. proving itself to be true. And even if you're
0: above all of that, mm. Ellen Burstyn's performance, and uh, to be fair, Linda Blair's performance as a young girl suffering from an unendurable ailment, whatever it is, mm. if you want to remove all the supernatural elements in this film, just look at it as a metaphor for everything was going great, and then my child mysteriously fell ill, and no doctor can explain it. Mm even if that's all you get out of the movie, also terrifying! Also terrifying! (laughs) Also a terrifying concept for any parent to even consider. And that's another reason why when you're young, The Exorcist usually doesn't hit as hard. Because you have no concept of what that's like. Unless maybe you know young parents or you're like you have a and like yeah, the, uh... a lot of people like uh, rosemary's baby was another one for me that when i saw it when i was young i got it mm. but it didn't really freak me out i was the youngest person in my family i didn't i was never around anyone who was pregnant mm. i didn't realize just how horribly wrong that pregnancy was going until i was around people who were pregnant and mm-hmm. i know how this is supposed to go and now i'm like <gasps> Oh I get it now
1: Oh that's <laughs> fucked up This is why this is so terrifying And they keep on gaslighting her And telling yeah. her that I think everything's okay Yeah like well, yeah, she's clearly, clearly
0: not okay. There's something really wrong here Like like you need a certain amount of experience To fully appreciate certain kinds of terror yeah. I think uh, Because you just They're not something you worry about right now It's something you're aware of enough To understand when something is right or wrong Um it's impeccably presented. It's impeccably acted. The makeup is brilliant. This is something we don't talk about enough. Max von he
1: wasn't that old. No, they didn't I, need to cast him. They could have just gotten an old guy. I remember yet, seeing a, a Minority Report with a bunch yeah. of my friends, and uh, that, that came out in the early two thousands. And we and Max Van Sydow in that one too. Yeah, and I pointed out. So you've seen Max von before? Yeah, I so saw him in uh, Judge Dredd and The Exorcist. Like that's all yeah. they'd known him from. I said, do you realize that in Minority Report, he's playing a character the same age as this character he played like 20 years or or 30 years earlier?
0: Yeah. And guess what? He looks right. He looks right. Sometimes it's really interesting sometimes when you see like movies where someone's like in old age makeup and then they actually do get to that age and you realize, well, you know, how could they have known? Mm. How could they have known exactly how they look? They knew. I don't know how they knew. They knew exactly what he would look like in 30 years. It's impeccable. He looks exactly right. You would never have guessed it was old age makeup if you didn't know the actor. It's so ahead of its time in makeup. It's incredible.
1: Well, plus they put the makeup on uh, Linda Blair. Oh, made, also, yeah, really made, creepy. Made really but demonic. but that's
0: monster makeup. So like you know, that's not what she's supposed to look Although, like. Max von is subtle.
1: The design of the monster makeup was supposed to. At first, they wanted it to look more like actually demonic, something like Evil Dead. Yeah. Where they put all these prosthesis and like extend their face and make them look like monsters. Uh, in. William Friedkin wanted wanted to make it look more like like wounds, like something was breaking through her yeah, skin. Like, like, again, diseased. Like, yeah, yeah.
0: Like someone who's actually suffering from physical illness. You see her mm. sunken eyes. It's only towards the end of the movie that she becomes like properly demonic, because right, at that right. point all of our doubt has been
1: mm.
0: allayed. We know what's really going on here. There's no question. Mm. This that, movie, that
1: exorcism scene is really intense. But so way. <laughs> great. Uh,
0: this movie. Mm. Uh, caused such an uproar when it came out That Christian groups claimed it was literally possessed Like the film itself in the canisters mm. Was the literally actual, possessed
1: Celluloid strips Yeah, uh, There is a wonderful uh, documentary series on Shudder It's called yeah. Cursed Films And the first episode is about The Exorcist Because nine people died During the making of The Exorcist
0: Yeah, it's one of those yeah, a lot tragic production. Yeah, a, a lot of people happened. died, a lot
1: of weird things happened. Yeah. Uh, William Friedkin, notoriously kind of a maniac director, Who like Play yeah. loud music on set and fire guns off all well, the time. He kept, he kept on, it yeah.
0: so cold that people got sick on the set cuz he yeah. wanted like when people walked into Regan's room, their breath could be visible. Mm-hmm. They so didn't they have a way to They didn't the set, have a way yeah. to fake that. Nowadays we just use CGI and you could probably not tell the difference if you had good CGI. If you had good CGI. Uh, I haven't I'm seen
1: not... I haven't seen good breath smoke with or CGI have
0: you maybe it's so good now that sometimes you uh-huh. can't that's happened to me though where okay. i was like oh i can always tell what's cgi and then someone would just say that was cgi i'm like fuck you really that that was so subtle good job like okay, occasionally but, it can happen
1: occasionally there, there yeah. are times when i've been tricked i feel like master and commander was the one that tricked me the most yeah when i saw the behind the scenes wait that was a model that was cgi no kidding
0: yeah you think it's all- with the exception <laughs> of the dodo which is clearly fake like
1: it- it's a it's a bug
0: there's a bug, but the you also see like a flightless cormorant, and that's not. No, like
1: that's it. a real cormorant.
0: It's a real cormorant. They the the, the, just bird, made it, the they, bird was
1: real. There's a scene where uh, Doctor Macher picks up a bug, and it's just completely CGI.
0: Okay, and I thought that. Okay, well then I just I just anyway. think birds look fake. Then maybe <laughs> birds aren't real. Maybe that is a real thing. Um, but I digress. Uh, but sometimes my point is this: they didn't have the option. Uh-huh. If they wanted breath to come out of people's faces they needed to refrigerate the set or have everyone smoke very quickly before they said action. And, uh, yeah, they froze the set and people got, like, really sick and apparently it was really unpleasant and, uh, yeah, it was a rough production and uh, I'm not saying there's much of an excuse for that. I don't think you really need to have to do that in order to make a good movie, but a great movie was made. Uh, question Do we skip your number two was that your have, number two I still have a
1: number two to go you still so have number yeah. two so
0: that was happened to be so my number two happened to be your number one yeah. your number three happened to be my number one yeah. so we're ending on your number two which is a little ironic but <laughs> let's talk about what What was your number two
1: um, I, know, I guess the, the film I was going to talk about before I got to the Exorcist was Luis Buñuel's The Exterminating Angel oh you know
0: I've, I've never seen this
1: Oh, I know all about it, uh, but I've
0: never actually sat down with uh,
1: it. How familiar are you with Bunuel in general?
0: I've seen some of his films. I've seen okay. uh, Unchained Andalou. Okay. I've seen The Discreet uh, Charm of the Bourgeoisie. That, and that's, that's
1: one of my favorites. And I think at, at least put that one, on one more, but I list. can't recall
0: which. But I have mm-hmm. seen other films.
1: I think uh, when we did the best Letter uh, uh, letter D films, like I mentioned The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie.
0: Memory serves you
1: did, yeah. Because yeah. I really love that movie. Um, I also love The Exterminating Angel. I love how uh, brash and confrontational Bunuel is about his politics. Uh, Are you rich? Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) That's Bunuel. Yeah, basically. uh, And The Exterminating Angel is uh, a bit of a surreal story about a bunch of uh, rich, uh, upper-crust assholes who are all on the, you know, sort of... Manipulating politics and the church for their own ends. Uh, Boonwell trusted no established systems. Yeah. Uh, economics, no, because that creates rich people and rich people are corrupt. Yeah. Uh, the church, no, because uh, there's no God and they're just trying to control you anyway.
0: That's what surrealism and, is about, really. Yeah, breaking yeah. down all
1: those structures. All these structures. And, yeah. and politics, <laughs> fuck you again. Um, that's Boonwell. <laughs> Uh, So a bunch of these rich assholes have gathered in a mansion for a big dinner party, and uh, dinners are a big part of Discreet Charm as well. Mm. Dinners are what rich people do. Mm. They get together because they have nothing to talk about, so they'll talk about the food and it gives them an activity. Isn't that cute of them? Right. Uh, So dinner parties are very ironic, dark things, for uh, especially like upper-crust dinner parties. The joke of Discreet Charm is that they can never find a place to have a dinner. The opposite happens in the Exterminating Angel, which he, which he made about a decade before, where all these rich people gather to have a dinner, and they can't leave. They're not locked in. Yeah. They just can't. Yeah. They just they walk they walk up to the the archway uh, next to the dining room to walk out, and they just simply for some weird cosmic reason can't bring themselves to leave, so the dinner party has to continue forever. <laughs> They have to find places to sleep. This is their hell. This is their hell now. That it, what would happen if that dinner party that they're so keen on just never ended, and and time passed? Yeah. Uh, where do they go to the bathroom? Well, luckily they have a lot of vases around. A lot of these rich people vases. I'm picturing
0: like, it, it, forgive me for bringing him up, but I'm picturing like James Franco showing up and like cornrows, and he's just like dinner party. <laughs> Dinner potty forever. forever. <laughs> like in Spring Breakers.
1: Spring yeah. Breakers is, is a great, wonderfully disturbing movie. It anyway. is. It's a really, um, really great film. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the only thing, the only use these, like, ancient, expensive vases have now is just to carry their crap. Uh, what are they going to do for food? Well, luckily, uh, in this little surreal twist, a bunch of sheep wander through at one point, and they like attack the sheep and kill them and eat them because that's their food now. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, and and it, it just goes on. the The dinner party goes on, and the dinner party goes on, and they're just completely dis- by the end, just kind of reduced to savagery. It's almost like a Lord of the Flies after a while. Uh, until the military show up, you got to come out. We can't. <laughs> Dinner parties are too important to us. And, uh, oh golly, the, the political messaging is is just delicious in something like Exterminating Angel. I love how uh, impishly angry Boonwell was. Uh, is it obvious symbolism? Of course it is. Uh, is it good symbolism? Is it on the nose? Yeah. Is it exciting to watch? Oh yeah. Because <laughs> you hate those people, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Boonwell certainly does, and uh, his his hatred is just so delicious and something like the exterminating angel. Um, and yet it has a weird kind of sad sympathy as well, not for the characters per se, but for the plight of humanity and how we sometimes all get kind of stuck in these cycles. and after a while, we do all become really desperate, and that's something that Boonwell also kind of wants you to wants you to relate to as well you don't feel the desperation you're not going to get you know sort of the torture that these people are going through but at the same time he hates them (laughs) so that that's that's my number two it's what i was going to talk about before i got to the exorcist but you kind of cut me off
0: Uh, you know what we have flaws in our format what people brought it up at least Mm. at least they all at least uh we didn't run into each other's number ones like right at the start of the list (laughs) Right, which happened like the last two times in a row so pretty good Mm. this time uh Okay, real fast, uh, let's uh, go through each other's uh, top 10s for those who, uh, you know, just want a quick rundown. Uh, so uh, my top 10, and again, only number one was the one that counts in terms of order, but uh, was Lee Tamahori's The Edge, uh, Joe Dante's Explorers, uh, John Carpenter's Escape from New York and LA, Irvin Kirshner's Empire Strikes Back, Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, Lau Leung's. Executioner's from Shaolin, John Borman's Excalibur, uh, Sam Raimi's Evil Dead 2, Wim Friedkin's The Exorcist, and of course David Lynch's Eraserhead was my number one. Uh, Whitney's list includes El Topo, Eating Raul, Escape from New York, Easy Rider, Eyes Wide Shut, An Elephant Sitting Still, The End of the Tour, Eraserhead, The Exterminating Angel, and The Exorcist. And I'm sure we both have some runners-up.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh,
0: why don't you go first? So these uh, are films um, just, that just, we re- we
1: recommend these yeah, movies um, that didn't
0: quite make our top ten. They're not in, in no particular
1: on. order. I also listed Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very fond of uh, David Cronenberg's film Existence. That made my runners-up too. a movie. Yeah. Um, uh, One-Two Punch from Tim Burton, Ed Wood, and Edward Scissorhands. Yep. Uh, those are both quite good movies. Also and, on my list. Mostly in his, that fable sort of way that he does. Uh, a film from a couple of years ago called Eighth Grade. Oh, ah, that's a really good girl. film. It's yeah, very yeah. sweet uh david ayers end of watch about two cops it's found footage movie and uh that's one of the
0: better modern cop movies i wish i could have made space for it but it's really good
1: david it's it's the only david Ayer film i really like that one in fury is pretty good too but i really love end of watch i
0: I think fury is one of the better world war ii movies actually but end of watch is probably his best film um
1: Uh, Richard Linklater's Everybody Wants Some, sort of like a sequel to, uh, sequel ish spiritually to Dazed and Confused. I don't
0: think any movie on my runners up came as close to being in my top 10 as Mm. Everybody Wants Some. It's Mm. actually like a really kind hearted film Mm. about, like, teen masculinity just about people yeah, who are yeah. like come together through their shared love of playing sports listening to music and kissing girls like it's it, just but it's, but it's, it's, it's very a,
1: but it's come by honestly it's yeah. not it's nostalgic it's a nostalgia piece but it's not halcyon or uh, like no romantic about it's no. just about happens to be
0: about a very chill weekend just before college starts yeah, yeah it's, it's just...
1: a really really good movie i like that movie it came mm. so close to my yeah. time um I, I didn't want to put this on my list just because I saw it this year, but Everything Everywhere All at Once is an excellent movie. Mm -hmm. I encourage everybody to see that one. Uh... Ex Machina, a film about not yeah. so, not so much artificial intelligence as it is about misogyny. Uh, yeah. It's a really kind of a thematically rich movie. Made
0: my list of, or my runners. Uh, there.
1: A documentary about LA street art called uh, Exit Through the Gift Shop. Oh uh, which shit! Is really I didn't even think of
0: that. That's that's on my. That might have made my top ten. <laughs> Exit Through the Gift I'm Shop? I'm mad. I did not think of that uh, one. That movie is amazing. Yes, uh, please see that movie. I about love that a, movie.
1: A street artist named Mr. Brainwash and how yeah. I kind of was emblematic of a turning point when, uh, street art became something interesting in yeah. punk rock into something kind of gross and commercial. There's,
0: there's something some, uh, Banksy has a line Banksy, in that yeah. movie, which I think about a lot, mm-hmm. which is, uh, I used to tell people, you know, if you want to be an artist, you should just try it out. Just be an artist. Tell your art. After, after this, I don't really do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: told that to Mr. Brainwash. Yeah. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, a French horror movie uh, very kind of slow and contemplative called Eyes Without a Face mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a really terrific one uh, an action time loop movie called Edge of Tomorrow that's a Tom good film. Cruise is a lot of fun that's a really good uh, film uh, it's not directly about, um, the Columbine school shootings, but it kind of reenacts them. Uh, Gus Van Zandt's Elephant. Elephant is, is pretty great. Yeah. It, yes, that's a really intense Except for movie. it's depiction
0: of video games, which I don't know what the fuck they think video games are. Like, it was just weird. I, you know,
1: I, I take it as like an abstraction of Yeah, games. but
0: considering it, it, I think it's a flaw in the film, but whatever, yeah, it's yeah. fine.
1: Uh, Paul Verhoeven made a really interesting film about sexual assault and survival called L. Yep, that's a great. Uh, which movie. is really wonderful. Um, at my son's insistence, Encanto. <laughs> Encanto is not, Encanto is uh, no not, not n- actually not a favorite did, of mine, but my son. I didn't assistant. need
0: a child's insistence. I actually think Encanto is really great, and I suspect it's going to age well. But it's a little too early. Okay. So, but I I really do love Encanto, and I seriously considered putting it on the top ten, but we we'll little uh, see. Uh,
1: a really stylish version of Jane Austen's Emma by Autumn de Wilde from just last year. Has have uh, seen so, that version. You know, with,
0: uh, um, yeah, with uh, um, uh, Anya
1: Taylor-Joy. Anya Taylor-Joy. I quite like the uh, I
0: quite like the Gwyneth Paltrow version from the '90s too. That's a very that one's pretty good. Yeah, but I, I really I, yeah. I like the
1: Autumn de Wilde version a little bit better. Cool. And uh, and of course, cinema classic, Earth Girls Are Easy.
0: Oh my god, I didn't. Even, I didn't think of that one either. That would have at least made my runners up. That is a all great. Right. That is a great movie. Good. Good pick. Good pick. Uh, oh, those, those are my runners all up. All right, I'll, I'll try to avoid the ones that you mentioned. Uh, but let's see here. Uh, neither of us mentioned it in any capacity. I think it's because it's a little obvious, but it's really good, and there's no denying it. E. T. the Extraterrestrial is an impressive motion picture in every way. You just don't need us to tell you that. It's okay. just I, really, really good.
1: I, I saw that once.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I I have a lot of admiration for it. I don't necessarily. I didn't really grow up with it the way a lot of people did, it and one watch it all the time. But it's mm-hmm. really, really good. Uh, a more contemporary movie that covers similar ground, but I think is refreshingly modern, has a lot of really positive things to say about a, a contemporary generation, and was criminally underseen. Mm-hmm. Earth to Echo.
1: Earth to Echo is really good. I like Earth to a Echo a
0: great kids movie. I highly recommend it. Please don't let this, like, get relegated to, like, the bottom shelf of, of history. It's a very good film, and it's really wonderfully done. Uh, I un- Unbelievably joyously trashy pulp, Eliminators.
1: Oh, I forgot. How do, how could I forget Eliminators? Oh, Eliminator- I feel bad about that. Eliminators
0: is one Eliminators of Eliminators is awesome. Elimi- it's uh, Indiana Jones and a flying oh robot God. and... I
1: a tank man.
0: There's a tank... Well, he's a tank... Well, there's he's also... A, he's a, fli- a
1: mandroid. Right?
0: Also, Denise Crosby has a flying robot.
1: Oh, yeah. He right. does.
0: And they fight a time-traveling mad scientist, and ninjas are in there, too. Mm. And it's absolutely... Bonkers and yet weirdly grounded, like it actually like works better as a story than you'd think.
1: Takes that story like kind of practical. It is.
0: It's seriously like you can see the template that Marvel is using today for how to take completely outlandish ideas and get you to just be on board with them, and you can see it in the DNA in this great movie. Eliminated. so good. um I love the pieces. uh John Sales movie that I love. Uh, but I haven't seen it in a really long time, and I wasn't sure if I could speak too articulately about it, uh, is this great uh, uh, real-life baseball story called Eight Men Out, which is about the big Black Sox scandal, Uh about, uh, you know, uh, baseball players who got involved in gambling and kind of ruined the sport for a while, and it's kind of what uh, Field of Dreams is kind of about, too. Uh, But that's a great movie. Um, Let's see what I have here. Uh, David Lynch's The Elephant Man is also great. Yeah, yeah, Nearly been my top ten. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, but I think that ended up on a previous iron list somewhere, and I'll just let it slide, because uh, it's absolutely wonderful. Uh, another great 80s sci-fi movie is Enemy Mine, starring Dennis Quaid and Lou Gossett Jr. Oh, uh, I like Enemy Mine. As a human a and, like, the alien species that we're in this intergalactic war with, they get stranded on a planet together, and they have to learn to respect each other in order to survive. Uh, it's really great, actually. Like, it's very very effective uh end of the tour made my runner's up list uh the englishman who went up a hill but came down a mountain i, I figured you'd choose this it's a very sweet
1: film it's actually i, I it know works, you like that it one.
0: works really good actually like i just the title is ridiculous but it's great uh end of the dragon is pretty badass equilibrium is very badass but stupid but badass please equilibrium it's fun <laughs>
1: Equilib- equilibrium is like um mm what if Brave New World but stupid B-movie?
0: With with amazing action sequences, though. Like, admit it. The action sequences are fucking incredible. They're fine. Okay. Uh, Wonderful animated film that kind of came and went is Ernest and Celestine. About a bear who oh, lives with yeah. a mouse. That movie's really I, sweet.
1: I, I missed that one. I you never know, saw that? that? Out, oh, yeah. you should
0: watch that. You should watch that. That movie's really adorable. Hmm. Like, in a very real way. Like, they so earn I, it. I remember they when it. it came out. Uh, Eternal Sunshine with Spotless Mind's pretty great. Yeah, um, um, didn't quite make my list. I know a lot of people... More on that one. Pe- pe- more people like that movie than I do, mm-hmm. but uh, people like the movie more than that. Uh, the Exorcist 3, I would actually argue, in some respects, is more frightening than The Exorcist 1. But I think The Exodus 1's a better film. Yeah. Uh, But seriously, don't sleep on The Exodus 3. It's really, really frightening. Uh, There's a pretty solid Hitchcockian medical thriller from the 90s starring Hugh Grant and Gene Hackman called Extreme Measures. It's a a B movie. I haven't seen that
1: one since 97. It's a B movie uh,
0: with what was at the time an A cast, but it's... Pretty tightly constructed, right. has some interesting ethical quandaries at the heart of it. Like, it's better than you might think. Um, and uh, also, I'm a huge fan of the thriller Eyes of Laura Mars. Starring oh, Faye Dunaway oh, and Tommy a, Lee Jones and it was Brad Dourif. a TV
1: movie
0: wasn't it? No, 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 no. That, you're thinking of John Carpenter wrote this, but he also wrote a TV movie. No, oh, they, right. this is uh this is an A feature. It's directed by Irvin Kershner actually, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Faye Dunaway plays a photographer uh, who starts seeing through the eyes of a serial killer, and it's pretty gorgeous actually like really nicely shot like it's a pretty much an american giallo but it's a good one
1: yeah um uh, so i, I remember yeah. uh, Rene renee renee in that movie oh yeah um, he yeah, is in there. yeah he yeah, plays uh, like one of her uh, clients the scene i remember best from eyes of laura mars is yeah. uh, somebody is tailing laura mars yeah uh, faye dunaway and she has to sort of sneak out the back and they have to distract them it's like well let's just dress somebody in in faye dunaway's clothing well who, who who's her size renee aubergen her size so there's a bit at where he has, he is forced to leave his own birthday party dressed as Faye Dunaway. And the, the bad guy's like tumbling oh, yeah, he thinks it's Faye Dunaway. And he's like, hey, are you Faye Dunaway? He kind of like waves his hand. He's like, turns around as it's R- Rene Auberginois in a dress. Mm-hmm. He's like, and, and the guy's like, grab He's like, what are you doing? Why are you in a dress? And he says very, very dignified, it's my birthday. I can dress how I want. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful moment from Rene Auberginois. Yeah.
0: Oh, I almost forgot one. Adam McGoin's Exotica. Is a, oh, a really, really yeah. wonderful ensemble drama about the way grief is infecting like everyone in this mm. town where a, a tragedy happened, and it's a material he'd kind of revisit later on in the Sweet Hereafter, which I think yeah. is an even more accomplished piece. But Sweet Exotic Her- is really good. The
1: Sweet Hereafter is a better movie. I like, I yeah. like that one. I like Felicia's Journey. Yeah, uh, it's another Adam McEwin yeah. film. I really like. but,
0: but Exotic is definitely worth checking out too. It's mm. really, really good. Anyway, that is it for the Iron List this uh, this month. Thank you everybody for listening. Thank you to all of our patrons. Uh, who voted for this month and who vote for every single episode of the Iron List. You can vote, too, if you want to join our Patreon. Uh, Every single tier gets to vote for Iron List. You also get other uh, exclusive podcasts there as well. Uh, The new poll uh, for this month's Iron List uh, should be up around the time this episode goes live. Uh, And your options include, and we're going to take out best films that begin with the letter F. We don't want to do two in a row, Mm -hmm. but it'll come back after next month. Uh, Your options are the best movies of 2010 (laughs) Because why not? Well, it was the year before Whitney and I started podcasting So we never really got to cover 2010 in any meaningful Mm. way So 2010 might be an interesting thing to look back on Uh, The best slasher movies uh, Which, yeah, you you know Mm. People with knives (laughs) Killing people who are like, not don't kill me And then they're like, ah, stab, stab, stab Slasher movies. Don't kill me. <laughs> you can use that in a dictionary. Just a dictionary definition of slashers. Uh, the best comedies of the 1990s. Uh, pretty broad, but there's it's actually a pretty good decade for comedy. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Uh, and then lastly, uh, the best legal thrillers, hmm. which would be uh, thrillers that involve uh, lawyers, the courtroom, anything involving specifically the justice system, not just crimes or police. Uh, so um, yeah. We will do whichever one of those our patrons vote for in the month of May. Mm -hmm. And I look forward to it. So thank you once again, everybody, for voting. Uh, If you want to talk about anything that we discussed on this episode, if you want to share your own favorite films to begin with the letter A, let us know if we missed something that was awesome. Uh, We would love to hear from you. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Once again, that is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you would prefer to write us an actual physical letter, Whitney, what
1: is our P.O. Box? Uh, send us a physical letter. It is P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, nine double zero six four. Yeah.
0: We're also on Twitter at Critic acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And until next time, that's the list.